What's going on, everybody? Cali Death Podcast back once again, episode 61. Once again, missing the professor. He's still in Bangladesh. I hope he's having a fucking awesome time. Couldn't really get to uh, the computer to get on here with us, but we miss you, brother. We'll see you uh, when you get back. Um, thank you to the resident homies, Joel and Casey, for being here with me this week. Um, thanks to all the subscribers. Thanks to all the listeners. Um, hope you guys had a great holiday and, uh, yeah, we're back to it and today's your new year's Eve. So be safe, but fucking rage on, um, today is actually a couple reasons why it's uh, special. Um, one, we got a fucking legend on here with us. We'll get to him in a second, but our first, uh, product, uh, little like, uh, commercial thing for, uh, our homies and deeds of flesh, Jacoby, Mike and Ivan over the last year been doing a uh, starting a new company and it's a coffee company and it's called uh, Barrel Forged Coffee and um, I don't know if you guys got yours yet Joel Casey did you guys get it yet I haven't no I haven't should be coming soon um, but yeah dude I'm a coffee fanatic dude I, I drink it every day all day what's a fucking podcast without a fucking little coffee thing in the beginning but really though it's like it's really good shit, guys. It's Colombian beans. They've been doing fucking a lot of shit last year, getting it ready. And I'm not just saying this because they're my longtime homies. It actually is really good coffee. I've been drinking it for like the last three days. And and uh, yeah, when this thing gets uh, rolling, you guys should uh, support those guys. Battle Forged. Battle Forged Coffee Company. Is there a website? Um, Good question, dude. Yes, it is. Uh, Battleforgedcoffee.com. Fuck yeah battleforgecoffee.com so go check that out i'm i obviously it is a website if it's on the bag i don't know if the bag is going to look like this these might just be like little promo things but uh either way go support uh previous guests of the podcast longtime homies fucking fellow brutal death metal fucking awesome dudes and uh yeah here we are today with the legend i was just speaking about jeremy wagner from fucking broken hope and a guest guest fucking spot right here nobody knew about little fucking cutty riff wizard shit coming in on the yeah, side yeah, fucking yeah. diego sanchez <laughs> what up dude <laughs> but yeah dude to be a part of it hell yeah dude and jeremy thanks for being with us tonight too i know you're on the east coast so thank you very much for giving your shit thanks time for having me man I'm, I'm glad to be here i uh quick thing about the your little coffee plug mm -hmm. for that battle forge stuff I think it's great. Uh, you said the Deeds of Flesh guys are doing that. Yeah. There's something about coffee and, and, and death metal that go hand in hand. Like our, our drummer, Mike, actually manages this badass uh, coffee company in Chicago. And they're, um, they're called Dark Matter Coffee. I don't know if you guys ever tried it when you're in Chicago, but they've got several locations in Chicago, but they also have a manufacturing plant that packages and makes their own lines of coffee. So um, they've collaborated with a bunch of different metal guys in the past, like Charlie from Anthrax um, and Kirk from Metallica um, and it's some more indie extreme bands. And then they just got their own or their own brand, but um, um yeah, coffee and death metal. It's yeah, like, dude. I, I, there's also, I think it's grinding core coffee or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
they do a know, lot of the underground archaics got one archaics have, got a blend and yeah. uh a That's bunch awesome. of tech metal bands got a blend through them cool and yeah, to see dude, it's i mean cool to see bands like uh, opening up sorry just real quick just like it's cool yeah. to see like bands like opening up to something different like that like not being like it's not like merch cds uh-huh. hats blah blah it's like they're doing like coffee's a cool little like side hustle to like you, you know and it, something dude. we could use too you know it's something like caffeine that we is, use. is the number one used drug on the planet Definitely. everybody ah. fucking loves caffeine dude and us death metal guys grindcore guys we like fucking speed too so what getting pumped to go to a show ah. or fucking getting pumped ah. to do this thing getting pumped to just listen to some music and shit caffeine works very well with that you know some right. guys go a little harder and get a little fucking powder in the situation. They get really <laughs> fucking crazy. But I just like to stay mellow, smoke weed, and fucking drink coffee, dude. I know yeah. just a quick quick edit. You said like we like speed. We like you know like going fast. Well, yeah, not yeah. Like, we like going not like, fast. Not like the, the Giorgio episode. <laughs> yeah, he's talking no. about like how the old death or not even death guys, but the old like his old bands and shit. Like everyone was doing speed. Not that kind of speed. Not no, the, not the no, yeah, we just like speed. fast fucking shit and aggressive <laughs> shit, dude. And of course, <laughs> yeah. caffeine gets you fucking ready for that, you know? Totally. Totally. So, yeah, dude, it's really cool to see that. And, and you know, a lot of guys could pair up with beer and shit. And I love drinking beer. But at the same time, like, I don't want to I don't think I want a beer associated with me because then it's like us promoting going out and getting fucked up, which we do with the show anyways. But yeah, you don't I, do too good when you have a couple of beers, Anthony. <laughs> i do fucking great bro what are you talking <laughs> no i mean also too like <laughs> like oh, dude, shipping beers shipping beers a bitch too so like if you're like if you mm. had a beer association like you have to be local to get like get it out you know so it's not really like logistically a good thing yeah i was now that diego said that i was fucking hammered the last time i saw him in person yeah. so. <laughs> your smile gets bigger and your biceps get bigger and your hug gets stronger <laughs> because <laughs> i got all oh, that love man. dude i want to spread yeah, yeah. that was so sick dude you and your life were jamming out dude hell so yeah dude it was fucking awesome dude and we'll, let's talk about that a little bit but let's get into uh, a little bit later but let's get into jeremy a little bit dude hell so yeah. one one i want to know how you guys uh i mean i got you both of you guys on the on the show with me right now like how are you guys you know hooked up and friends for however long you guys been friends uh, well, I actually, I don't know if Diego, if I met you before we toured back in 2013. Um, but I just really remember knowing you from that tour we did in yeah. 2013. Yeah, definitely. We definitely got to become friends on that one. Yeah. And yeah, I met you, I met you over the years though, ever since the Thousand Repugnance tour. Okay. Every time you, I was repugnance, repulsive conception, loathing, you know, grotesque, like every tour you got with Joe, too. I got to, well, I mostly wrapped out with Joe yeah. in the parking lot, you know. Did you and see then, said, uh, the whiskey uh, on the balls tour? No, this yeah. was, um, was it showcase maybe or something? Oh, San Antonio? No, in uh, Corona, I think. Oh, Corona. Okay. Yeah. Played there. Showcase. That would have been um, uh, showcase theater. Conception. Yeah. 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 That was was back to back. I saw you two nights back to back. I saw you there, and then the World World Beat Center, I think it was down in San Diego. After that. Yeah. Okay. That and that was on Loving. Yeah. Oh no shit. Yes. Oh, when the when the rave started after. Remember for the end of the set. 
Um, I've got a, a, I've got video from that show because I used to always bring Man. a camcorder on tour. Thankfully, you know, because I got all those memories now. But dude, I remember uh, fucking disco ball coming down because we were going over our time. We were headlining that tour, and they wanted to start the rave. Right the whole show started out <laughs> super late because the promoter, his sound guy bailed on him and he's scrambling to find someone to run the sound shit. And oh, that sucks. Um, our, and, and that was the first time we ever played San Diego as well. Um, oh. But I got the I got a video from my camcorder. We set up, you know, to record every show. And I remember fucking disco ball coming down out of the ceiling. And our singer Joe, rest in peace, is like, "Yeah, uh, looks like we're gonna start boogieing down here in a fucking minute or something." <laughs> yeah. Pretty fucking funny, but it's funny you remember that, dude. Because yeah, that's, oh, man. they kicked well, in the rave, and it was like, "Fuck, our all right, I guess we got to wrap up our show," you know? But, yeah, yeah, that sucked, man. Especially because by then you had so many albums out, so you're looking forward to hearing so many songs, of course. Yeah, and you're always promoting the new one, but. They started, they started setting up at like, started setting up at like 11, 11.30, just putting little tapestries here and there, and you see people walking around. You know, this is back in the 90s when they're wearing huge pants and their light sticks. and Yes. Like, more power to them. I mean, they had a lot of fun, but not at a death metal show. You know, like, back then, I've, there wasn't... I think that's venues. Back in the day. It wasn't that's a venues of- just trying to get squeeze the most out of the night, you know, because now we've had enough of these shows to where there's been a, a thing that we've heard about a few times where they yeah. shut down the death metal show and bring in the rave. And all yeah. they're doing is just fucking, you know, getting well, you know what, fucking man? rents out of one. After having our set cut short a couple of times and going on tour, you know, to go and tell the sound guy or the tour manager or anybody whoever goes over their set. That cuts into their time, you know, because I'm not getting my set cut short. Totally. And people people want to get butthurt about it or whatever, but I like playing my music, especially live. And the fans, they you know, they only get to see you do whenever you come through every now and then if they can make yeah. it. And if some, like if you're there to see that band, like it sucks. I've seen so many bands and tour with so many bands that just get cut off, and you're like, ah, oh, we were gonna play this song, but you know, yeah, that's uh, the worst. You know, that's the worst. The local, whoever it was, you know. That's Drag what it is. It's, it's, it ripple effects. It starts in the beginning and it slowly just ripples yeah. through it. Yeah. Until it gets horrible. to the headliner and then they get fucked usually. Hey, I got a question for you, Jeremy. Did yes. uh did Brian ever get stuck doing sound when he was live sound when you guys were on tour? Like uh doing sound for us? Yeah, for the band as well as like because I know he re- he did uh, a couple of your albums, but did he, uh, did, yeah, did he, I mean, Brian, he do a live set? Like Brian, Brian's always been a really great sound man. Um, and the only thing he ever did was like he, a, a few times over our, our touring years when he was in the band, he would maybe set up the board. Yeah. You know, he would sound check. Yeah. He got a wireless at the board, sound check, and his guitar playing That's along cool. and get stuff. Cause in the 90s, the, we, even with all those albums and even headlining um, tours later in the late 90s, when we got to that point, yeah, uh, we still didn't make a lot of money. We couldn't really afford a fucking sound man, you know? Right. Um, 
so Brian, thankfully, yeah, he'd sometimes dial in the board um, or work with a sound man, a house guy, you know, yeah. make, them, make sure shit was legit. But, um, but uh, you know, he never um, like did our sound uh, like he never did our sound while we played or anything like that. Yeah, and correct. Do, um, to my knowledge, he didn't do any bands sound when we toured um but he started getting into the front of house game like in the late 90s um death actually took him out there was a death tour um and in fact there's a death album a live album i think it's live in la where they recorded at the whiskey brian was on that tour and did sound for that Oh wow! Okay, so they also do the corresponding DVD too. The live footage came out on yeah. DVD. So Brian Brian did that sound and um or did sound for death on that tour, and then um that's killer. From there, his he was always great studio guy because he produced all our first five albums, and um he had gone to school to be a studio engineer and all that stuff. So he really had skills, and we as a band, we're really lucky to have him because we had a built-in producer and a guy who really knew what he was doing. Um, and much like us not being able to afford a sound man, Broken Hope in the 90s, we didn't have huge recording budgets either. So it wasn't like we were grabbing a, you know, a Scott Burns or someone. Mm -hmm. We didn't have that kind of money. But we did have Griffin. And I think that benefited us greatly. Um, one, Brian worked in a recording studio full time while he's in the band. So we had access to a studio uh, on off hours and with the small budgets we had from the record label, we milked that, you know, we would be able to be in a studio for sometimes eight weeks, you know, thanks to Brian, because we come in no one would be there. He'd be doing all the work and he worked his ass off, you know. Um, but later in the ni- late 90s and stuff, like when he went out with death, as soon as he did that tour, people started asking for him to do sound. So he was like, next thing you know, he's on tour doing sound for Meshuga and then all these other bands. And then over time, his career and trajectory went from working in a recording studio to being a full-time uh, sound man and even a tour manager for huge bands. And his main band he's with to this day is Lamb of God. So, oh, so wow. you know, he's still been their longtime sound man and their tour manager. So um, he's come a long way, but he's got these amazing years and, and skills, you know, and again, yeah. um, you know, we were lucky to have them back back in those days. You know, it's nice to have, it's nice to have a double slice of of uh, the pie of Lamb of God tour. You're the sound guy and the tour manager and the tour two slices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's he's done pretty well for himself. You know, absolutely. Right on, Jeremy. Well, uh, yeah. let's uh, let's get into it a little bit more with you. So, how we usually do this on the episode, we take we want you to take us back as far as you can go, dude. Tell me when uh, music 
became important to you? You know, we like to hear about, at least me personally, like to hear about what your parents were listening to when you were around the house, all that kind of shit. Like what sparked it for you? And then what sparked it to get you into actually wanting to play it? All right. Well, I'll tell you, man, uh, when it comes to uh, doing a deep dive and uh, doing my origins, um, just Anthony, you can buckle your seatbelt in. because I'll, <laughs> I'll give you the whole story. Now, I'll try to make it Reader's Digest version as much as possible, but um, I tend to talk your ear off. So, hey, dude, we go for at least we go for two, three hours at least, dude. So, okay, I mean, the Georgia was just on oh. for over four hours. So, oh, no shit, right? Okay, on. Yeah, and then he hung out for an hour afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, well, let's do it. Yeah, I saw you guys had some great guests, man. I was going to say for the people who were watching and saw that that freeze up at the end, we had wrapped it up, and then like. 30 seconds later, it was like Steve's trying to get back on. I was like, fuck, man, if we just stuck it out and just bullshit it for a little bit, we would have had like a correct wrap up or whatever with him. And, but it's still we we hung out. He came back. So that yeah, dude, that all. dude hangs. I'm just going to say He's fucking, <laughs> uh, so cool. fucking cool, dude. I mean, yeah, I'm still like floating on that cloud a little bit, too. And then I get caught by fucking Jeremy Wagner's cloud. And I'm like, fuck, dude, what the fuck's <laughs> yeah, going we're, on, dude? we're super stoked <laughs> to have you on, man. Before before I begin, I before I forget, I have a question for Diego, bro. Um, are you on either? Uh, you smoke either really good weed or you have natural endorphins because as long as I've known you, you're constantly smiling, and you're yeah. so good natured. And uh, every time I see your face, it's like I want to harness that that good positive diego vibes i get dude what hell yeah like thank you man i appreciate it smiling man it's a great you know the what what are you talking about man is it is it better i haven't i haven't smoking i haven't smoking really good weed for a long time but (laughs) i have i've got a lot of different generations in my family they're all musicians Uh uh-huh then I think when you put in your heart, like, you know, there's certain years where like the scores used to practice five nights a week for years. Mm-hmm. So I think when you have that natural release, you know, and creativity and everything, I think you get rid of a lot of things. Cause I, I am just happy go lucky, good natured anyways. Yeah. But I know that when you put like, you know, that's a music is an awesome release, man. And, now that I have a four-year-old and you look at life differently, like I'm just thankful to be here, bro. And yeah. to, you know, to know you as a friend, cause I was just a little kid, dude. I was like 13, 14 years old. And you know, your logo is what got me to get your album. And next mm-hmm. thing you know, it just turned out to be, I still got the original bowels of repugnance long sleeves, dude, with that, that has like 20,000 colors on it. The ink is so thick on that thing. <laughs> I think, uh, I got, I actually got a, I, I eBayed this is a side note. I eBayed a fucking, cause I'm, I'm a younger dude. I'm only 37. So I caught you guys after the wave, but I, I had a, I, I think I still have a repulsive conception tour shirt that I found on eBay for like 30 bucks back in the day. Yeah. But I, what I was also going to add to what Diego was talking about is what I, I, I was just going to add to it. Meaning like, I, it's not just death metal. I mean, you come through, you, you meet all these musicians throughout you know your career and you you and most of the, and with me personally most of the people i meet are totally fucking chill 
you know, there there's a, a spectrum. Diego's high on the super chill side of that spectrum, but yeah. there's still like mostly chill dudes. And I think that, yes, that's what it is. It's we're able to, we have a release, a ther- it's a therapy in a way to, yeah. to let it out on stage or to let it out in the studio or just fucking growling on the way to work. People looking at y'all fucking crazy and shit, but it's just like, we're get a little fucking juice yeah. out, you know, let off a little steam. And then it's like, Oh dude, let's fucking kick it. dude. I do let's joke around it. a lot on this podcast about like, cause every time you get brought up Diego, everyone, everyone's like, Oh Diego. Like everyone gets like, just, Oh, they turn into you a little bit. There's like, Oh, fuck yeah. Like, <laughs> like they could, you can, it's kind of like contagious. And I was like, has anyone ever seen that guy pissed? I don't know. Like, is that guy? Uh, I've yeah. never yeah. seen him. Like, I've never, oh. I, I don't even know what that would look like. I have no, even like, I can't even like pretend to like make it <laughs> like a, another reality in my head to see you mad. Like I can't even like every time you're like this, you've what always if he been actually like this. turns oh, into a wizard, dude, eyes all red and shit. I know he, what he's fucking cloaking. actually a wizard just comes out. Like, Fuck it, <laughs> <I told you." laughs> yeah. You, you got to awesome. continue, but it comes out every now and then. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. No, no. Well, but like what, what Jeremy was saying, I totally, I mean, appreciate Every time I see you, we could be having like a, a tough time on tour or something. Then you meet up with us in San Diego and it's just like, hey, you know, like yeah, just the, the vibe gets changed instantly. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Thank you, guys. I'm just yeah, I, got man, good, I, I got good genetics, man. I, I had to ask you, bro. <laughs> yeah, I like, like your positive nature. Um, so anyway, um, back to Anthony. You're, so I'll, I'll start off with uh, I was. So I was born in um, a town called Libertyville, Illinois, and that which happens to also be the hometown of uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. Oh shit! And um, my my parents, both their families were from there. Libertyville is like a northern suburb of Chicago. So when I was around three, my parents decided they wanted to move to Central Wisconsin because my maternal grandparents. A bunch of my aunts and uncles had moved up there, and um, my parents loved it. So I was basically I lived in Central Wisconsin from age three till uh, sixteen. Then I moved back to Illinois uh, to live with my dad. By that time, my parents were divorced, you know. So it was like nineteen eighty six, um, and so I grew up in the country. I was like really in the middle of. America's dairy land was nothing but fields of corn and other crops and all these dairy farms. So my parents had a farm, but we didn't have um, any livestock or anything. It was just a farm we lived on. And it was any pretty siblings. Uh, one sister. She's a year and a half younger than me. Okay. And uh, uh, her name's Sarah. And um so growing up in in central Wisconsin in the 70s, um, you know, there's no cable TV. We had rabbit ear antennas on a black and white TV. So maybe we got three or four TV channels and stuff. So um, a lot of my growing up, which I think is a great thing, was like, not with my eyes glued to the TV, I'd be listening to like my parents' record collection, right? Um, and I was also very much into books. My mom was this voracious reader um, and she was, her tastes in books 
were kind of like what my tastes are. And I, and I think maybe I got this from my mom, but she was into mystery, thriller, dark fiction, and horror books. So um, I'd pick up my mom's paperback books from her library and look at the covers and be like, wow, that's cool. That's cool. And I was always, um, to this day, a horror kid. You know, I was into creepy, scary things. I loved Halloween, you know, when Halloween would come around, I couldn't wait to get dressed up and, you know, go trick-or-treating. Um, so I had a penchant for, for, for books and, and music at a very young age, thanks to my parents. Um, in fact, when I was well, with the book side of things, I was really um, literate as a young kid. So I was always consuming kids' books like nonstop. And then right around 1975, when the movie Jaws was in theaters and, and premiered, you know, uh, back then, uh, the paperback edition of Jaws was everywhere. Like every checkout lane at a grocery store, drugstore, yeah, everywhere. That book was everywhere. My parents had it. Um, so I have a quick question. Sorry. So is that, and this is me being just ignorant to, I've seen the movie Jaws, but don't know the origins. Is that based on a true story or a book that was written before the movie? Or did that book come out like, like right next to the movie at the same time um the the book the book was written before the movie yeah. i think the book was it was written by peter benchley and it came out maybe two years before the movie ever came out in theaters wow, that was quick they picked it up for a movie uh, yeah they 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 the the book um uh, the hardcover edition did really well. Um, Paramount Pictures, or I'm sorry, not Paramount, Universal Pictures mm -hmm. bought the film rights to it. And um, and they got Steven Spielberg, who at the time was a young director. Um, and uh, the movie ended up being this huge blockbuster back then. In fact, that's, I think Jaws is where the term blockbuster came from. No shit. So... Big before that, the biggest movie before that, I think, was The Godfather. Um, and that was a huge, you know, box office sensation. But Jaws, when it came out, was like this summer blockbuster, and it was super huge. So, Spielberg so uh, was part of that, huh? What's that? Okay, so, Spielberg was, was Jaws bef before or around the same time as Star Wars? Um, Jaws was before Star Wars. No shit. By, by a couple years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I have no idea. Damn. Yeah. So I think I put it all together too. That's I think cool. Jaws, Jaws came out at 75. I think Star Wars came out 77. And both Spielberg and George Lucas like were both kind of had these similar stories. They had done movies before these the movies that put them on the map and made them fucking huge, you know, yeah. the same age. Um, but yeah, the seventies, you know, that was like, that was the, like some of the greatest movies were made in the seventies in my opinion. But anyway, I, because of that cover of the paperback of Jaws, which was the same artwork you saw in the movie poster, the chick swimming naked with the big giant shark coming up. 
you know, I was like four or five years old looking at that cover and I was just like, it captured my imagination and it scared me and also had my interest. Mm -hmm. And that became like the first adult novel I ever read in my life, you know, like before that it was just kids books and to read a novel like that was one, a hell of an accomplishment for a grade schooler Two, there's some adult situations I didn't understand. I remember I had asked my mom, oh, what's this mean? Blah, blah, blah. She'd be like, I don't know if you should be reading that, but <laughs> yeah. it was pretty funny. So the reason I mentioned that the book stuff, because books and writing became a huge part of my life as years went on. And now I'm talking about music. Music was huge for me because my parents, they had this great vinyl collection and um, they play records and I latch on the songs and like um, want to hear them over and over again. For example, um, my parents had a Bob Dylan album called blood on the tracks. And on that album, there's a song called tangled up in blue, which I couldn't, as a kid, couldn't get enough of that song. I loved it. And I, you know, I'm again, like four or five trying to play their albums, you know, scratching the fuck out of their vinyl. Cause I'm like, you know, I'm like this tall, out, yeah. put Stand them on fucking a chair to get it in there. And, and then, um, I don't know if you all have kids, Diego, no, you, you said you have a four-year-old, but there's one thing about kids just from, you know, being a dad myself or, or observing kids in my whole life and being a kid, kids like certain movies, they'll want to watch a fucking DVD over and over and over and over again. You know, like my stepkids, I, I remember they when they were little, they wanted to watch Toy Story and they would watch it just uh you could just put them down and it would be on rotation right mm -hmm. so i'm a father like, of three so i know exactly what you're talking about dude yeah you know yeah it's crazy. <laughs> frozen for fucking but yeah I, I actually wanted to add to that because i'm like i i want that feeling as you an know, adult, it's hard to get that feeling like we're chasing. I remember, uh, yeah, I remember being in that feeling because I don't have any kids, but I remember like yeah. being upset. Like Top Gun was like, I watched Top Gun, like <laughs> yeah. it would be daily, it'd be like a daily hey, are you thing. Maverick, Joe? Yeah, dude, no, I don't know. And how you'd rewind bit. a part over and over and over <laughs> again yeah. of a part, and it would just fucking you'd just be on the floor rolling around laughing the whole time every time it fucking plays. Is like it that's what, like for me, like my dad out. had a, yeah, so my dad had a, like a Primus video and like just a quick little thing and i would literally come home it was a she called cheesy home video and it was just a, a vhs one of their first things it might be their first one but um i, remember I would that. yeah it was fucking funny man it was a, a funny it was a bunch of jokes and there's music videos and stuff i'd watch that thing from front front to the end like every day before school and then i'd come home and watch it again even like yeah. in the later like you know 11 to 13 time you know it still had that kind of like it wasn't burning out, you know, just like, yeah. you know, the flame was still going. It was still fresh every time. Kind of like what you're talking about with the kids. That explains a lot, Joel, because those guys were ahead of their time, man. And all <laughs> the different yeah. bands you played and like you've had to learn a lot of different people's styles, dude. And, you know, totally, totally. You pull your weight, dude. So that's, you know, it's, 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 um, it's pretty rad to have, you know, that artistic ability to just 
you know, mold and flow and get down. Yeah. Mold so and flow, what was the, what was the first jam, Jeremy, that you had to listen to nonstop? Did you already so, so, so like that, that Bob Dylan song tangled up in blue, yeah, like yeah, tangled up one, but then I start diving into like the rest of my parents' albums. So there was a ton of uh, Beatles albums and um, Crosby, Steals and Nash, Neil Young, Pink yeah. Floyd, Neil Young um, you know, Grateful Dead, uh, on and on and on. And the Beatles really became my favorite band as a kid. I just rightly so loved them. And um, like the song Baby, You're a Rich Man, I couldn't stop listening to that song. I was just crazy about that. And um, the song Yesterday, not in, in grade school, um, like a lot of kids, like this, I'm just remembering growing up, boy, like boys would be like, oh, at least where I grew up in, in the country, they'd be like, oh, girls have cooties and shit, right? Like, mm-hmm. they're like, um, you know, just funny grade school thing. But me, I was always this little hopeless romantic. I always thought girls were cute. And I wanted a girlfriend, dude, like since I was like age four, <laughs> right? I think so, I was the same yeah. way, dude. And I think it was yeah, Motown. Was Motown the, did that to me, dude. Everybody was singing oh, yeah, about their girl. chicks. This so I, would, career, right? I, I, um, this girl I had a crush on, I remember her name, Amy Erickson, like good old Viking name, Amy Erickson, right? Like, we. <laughs> Blonde hair, blue eyes. She had blonde hair, blue eyes. Her family ancestry was like from, you know, uh, Sweden or something or or Norway or something. And uh, so I would call her on the phone and um, trying to be all cool and, and, and stuff. And I would sing her the lyrics to the song Yesterday by the Beatles, you know. I was already trying to impress girls. That's awesome, dude. Little <laughs> young age. I, it was funny, but well, anyway, anyway, that song uh, right there, Anthony, to answer your question, that's one I'd play over and over and over and over again. So, listen to albums a lot, you know. <laughs> oh, and, and, and eight track, eight tracks too. Um, yeah, the band uh, Kiss. Uh, Hot Tuna. I don't know if you guys Ooh, ever uh, checked hot out Hot tuna? tuna. They were really big. Hot in Tuna. Show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they had a song called, uh, I think it was something like Hot Jelly Roll Blues or something. And that song, um, like, I still listen to it to this day. That's one I definitely had on repeat over and over and over again. Um, there's a real cool guitar lick throughout that whole song it's just it's just really cool but anyway that's kind of where my love of music started thanks to my parents and thanks to that i want to point out something about your parents real quick because you said you know you were raised on a dairy farm and stuff and that's like when you think of like farm living and stuff like that you don't think of beatles and like you know parents listening like you you think of them listening to like country or you know yeah they were like must have been pretty interesting folks yeah yeah we're chicago roots it's funny you mentioned that, Joel, because in that part of 
Wisconsin, where we lived, country music was huge. Most everybody listened to country music. And back then, as a kid and as a teenager, even into my early 20s, I hated country music. I always thought it, it sucked and all that. Later in life now, I actually have an appreciation for country okay. music, especially outlaw country. Me too. Like Waylon Jennings and shit like Waylon that. Waylon Jennings is my favorite. Yeah, yeah he's the best. I love him. And um, even some corny, like commercial country songs back in the 70s that I would hear, like the Oak Ridge Boys and shit. There's certain songs like now, I don't know. My attitude is if it hits me right and I like it, that's what fucking matters. It ain't exactly trying to be cool or whatever. Yeah, but I got over that shit a long time ago. Too, a long time, yeah, that's a good thing, you know. But when I was a kid, um, I rode on a school bus where the school bus driver would, you know, play country music mostly. All the kids on the bus, their parents and everyone listen to country music. Um, the kids I went to school with all had cowboy boots, trucker hats, and seriously smelled like cow manure. Damn. That's all I wanted to grow up with. Sounds like Bakersfield. My parents were these people that came from Chicago, had their own tastes and all this stuff and grew up in a different way and then were transplanted uh, by their own choice in the central Wisconsin, you know. But when I, when, when, I, um, when I was growing up, my dad had really cool friends in central Wisconsin, too, that were really into um, – uh, rock and roll and stuff. So like my dad's best friend at the time, Bruce, he, he, that guy was like a second dad to me. He was awesome. Um, yeah. he's no longer with us. He died here like in 1988, but he, oh, his effect on me in many ways, um, is so profound. And, and to this day, like, I like if I hear like Pink Floyd, the wall, okay. But him and my dad, when my parents divorced, I'd be with my dad on the weekends and we'd be at this guy Bruce's house. And it's like, uh, it's like one of these memes. I, I see these memes out there. Like um, if you rode a, a Schwinn bike like this and fucking, um, jumped a 50 foot pothole with no safety equipment and your parents didn't give a fuck where you are. You had a cool childhood. (laughs) That was like like my childhood. I'd be at my dad's buddy's house on the weekends. They'd be smoking fucking weed. Like you wouldn't believe they'd be drinking, partying. There'd be blow. There'd be shit like a kid probably shouldn't have been in that environment, but I don't know, man, it was the seventies. And my mom was like, Oh, you're off with your dad, you know, whatever, have fun. Like I'd be up till three in the morning. Cause that's how late these guys would party. Mm-hmm. And we just, I'd run around with my sister and, and the, the, the kids that were with these other grown ups, and they'd be jamming, Fucking Pink Floyd, The Wall, uh, The Cars, again, Neil Young, uh, all kinds of rock shit. And that really 
fucking hit home with me. And how old were you at like this time specifically? I would have been these years. Those years would have been um, from age eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, you know, and then when I was turned 13, because I live with my mom, I, my dad eventually moved back to Illinois and my mom moved to this nearby town, moved my sister and I and her to this town called Stevens Point, which was the big city uh, near the, the country area that I lived in. Stevens Point is this huge university town. And um, they actually, uh, what was cool about growing up in Stevens Point is they had a few record stores. They had a, a college campus record store and they always had the coolest music, you know, a constant, it was all metal, metal, metal. And then a record the, store on the campus, you know, right on the, it was called campus records. That's wow. what it was. called. That's and, dope, uh, dude. and uh, then there were other used record stores. And, and, and by that time too, when we moved to the big city, um, we got our first color TV and cable t- television. So I saw MTV in all its glory, you know, in its heyday. And there was a lot of metal and stuff. So I was getting turned on to all kinds of stuff. And, and, and that's where my tastes ch- started changing towards heavy metal. Because what now I'm going to junior high in this town and I'm meeting all these other kids that, um, we're into heavy metal. I meet these new kids, go to their house and they, their bedroom walls are plastered with all these heavy metal magazine pictures from hip parader circus, yeah. metal uh, maniacs. all this stuff, you know, um, way before metal maniacs, oh, uh, way before rip magazine, like oh, yeah. early, early, early eighties and stuff, you know, yeah. uh, and, and then eventually, uh, by the late eighties, some of those other magazines start coming out and catering to more extreme music. But, um, I remember what, so when I was in junior high and moved to Stevens point, um, I started getting into heavy metal stuff. Now, you know, I grew up with my parents' music and all this stuff. Now these kids were turning me on to all kinds of music. I had, uh, one friend, he was a skateboarder guy. And um, I always thought he was rich because he, he, he lit, his parents were pretty, you know, had great jobs and they bought him whatever he wanted. So this kid at the, in like 1985, he had like 200 cassette tapes of all these bands. And um, like for me to save up money to buy one cassette tape was a major hurdle. And my mom you know, sounds cliche, but my mom worked two jobs and to raise my sister and I, so she didn't have a lot of money. So if I was like, mom, can you buy me this cassette? Um, it depends. It depended on where her paycheck was that week. So seeing a guy with 200 cassette tapes, yeah, wow, you're fucking rich. And then I'd be like going through them all. Wow. Who's this band? Who's this band? And he had everything. He had like every at the time, every every Iron Maiden album. So they, much like books, my mom's books, I was always into cover artwork. So I'd see all this artwork and 
I'd start reading heavy metal magazines and getting those. And early on, like my first metal bands I was into, and this goes back, Anthony, to kind of what you're asking about my, my timeline with, with music and, and me getting into heavier music. I was like really into um, this band Zebra. I don't know if you remember that band, but they had, uh, they were, had this MTV video for the song called who's behind the door. And, um, they were, uh, their debut album was like my favorite album. I got it for my birthday and, uh, I couldn't stop listening to that album. If you ask, uh, Kirk Weinstein from Crowbar about Zebra, he'll probably gush all over you guys and tell you all about Zebra because they're from New Orleans and, and, uh, the, the guy, Randy Jackson, the guitar player, is to this day one of the sickest guitar players. Who are they comparable to? There, there's like another band that maybe more people would know that they can compare to. What's that? Is there is there any other band that you can compare them to that more people would be? I, not really. The, the, they were like the hair up, metals they were, type They were shit? set up like they had a kind of their own niche, like they were set up as a three piece always. So if you thought of think of rush mm -hmm. or, or triumph, um, you know, or, you know, I don't know, motorhead, they don't sound like any of those bands, but they had that formula three dudes only who were the sickest caliber of musicians you, you could, you could hear of. I three, do, three dudes making a huge sound. Three for three dudes. Exactly, and and so, but Anthony, I don't know who I'd compare them to, but they were just just fucking awesome. I'm gonna go check them out after this for sure. I got that cassette, and that was like, um, I I get I just got a Walkman in that cassette for my birthday, and again I was like 13, 14, and something like that. And did it have the EQ on it, Jeremy? I don't think that one had an EQ, bro. Oh, man. Once the EQ yeah. came out on it, it was all yeah. over after oh, that. Yeah. Oh, no, because uh, cassette players back in the day, it's like getting like nowadays, it's like equivalent to getting a PS5. Dude, like, I, I was know. fucking stoked. I was just about to ask. Like, the, my first oh. Walkman, I was so fucking so, jacked. Oh, it was a Christmas bro. present for me, too. I it was, was like, so yeah. fucking, oh, yeah, me too, man. I, I uh, would lay in bed at night. And, and just listen to my Walkman, you know, fucking. Uh, and then the next day I get ready for school and. Uh, dude, I was brushing my teeth with my Walkman. And I walk, walk to school. And this also sounds cliche, but it, you hear these stories. I sound like old man Wagner here, but you would walk. I would walk to school and I about a mile in this college town. Um, I was I in a, about to say in the snow, dude. I was like, no way, dude. Yeah, it's got to be in the snow, dude, barefoot. And it would be winter time, and my hair would be wet, and it would be frozen like a fucking ice helmet. And I'd have my Walkman on, and I would walk to school. And I'd be listening to – so, like, at the time, I was into Zebra. Wait, real quick. When you took your yeah. headphones off, was it like – off your hair did it get frozen oh, oh, to yeah your head? yeah on the top for sure the headphones were literally stuck it to your hair 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not my ears, thankfully, but yeah, right up here uh, every time. That's I mean, crazy. that shit was hard. Like you could go. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. I never got fucking pneumonia or anything. No wonder you're in Miami. <laughs> That's true. Well, you, yeah. you lived through it. That's why you didn't get pneumonia is because your body was used to those fucking winters, you know? I'd be so pissed some days because I'd walk to school after it would take forever to get there in the, in winter in a snowstorm and then find out school is closed because it's a snow day. Oh, oh. And you had to walk back. Yeah. Worst problems. I was so happy there was no school. But, yeah. But, but uh, <laughs> So I was listening to Crocus and Zebra and, and like Rat, you know, out of the cellar. And um, one album I got that really blew me away, which uh, and Casey, this is relevant to your shirt. When I told you I love your shirt, Screaming for Vengeance um, is, is to this day one of my favorite metal albums. And I remember that had just come out a couple years before. I was really getting into metal. I think that album came out in 82. So by the time I was, you know, 14, I, I got that album. I couldn't stop listening to it. And um, one day um, I'm watching MTV Headbangers Ball and they had a, a special, well, it was either Headbangers Ball or it was called Metal Mania before it was Headbangers Ball. Sure. Um, but I'm sure it's on YouTube. But I remember specifically MTV was at uh, this amazing festival, Day on the Green, in Oakland, California, in 1985. Heard of it. Is, it is, that, the, is that where the, the solo, the bass solo from uh, Cliff Burton? Yeah, Cliff Burton's bass solo is, is that footage is, is from there. And relevant to that, um, when I saw Metallica, it was just a quick um, couple of shots. I've gone back and discovered that someone had the wherewithal back in the day to record on VHS. Now it's on YouTube. So what I saw, what you can see now is like you see Metallica, I think like playing a snippet of um, either Ride the Lightning or Fight Fire with Fire. And then it cuts to James and Lars and they're like, Hey, you're watching whatever Metal Mania or Headbangers Ball on MTV, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I recorded that on VHS back then. I recorded everything on MTV that was related to metal. So I would watch that totally. over because I'd never seen um, a band live that looked like that. I, I had seen Metallica in metal mags, but I didn't pay any attention to them. At the time, they only had two albums out. You know, they had kill them all and ride the lightning. So that guy I told you about from school, we had like 200 cassette tapes, uh, the skateboarder kid, he, he, he had everything. So um, one day I went to, was hanging out with him at his house. And I'm like, um, do you have any, anything from that, a band I just saw on MTV called, yeah, what are they called? I, I, I swear I said Metallica. I didn't even know how to pronounce the fucking name Metallica. Mm -hmm. Go Metallica. And he said, you mean Metallica? I go, yeah, that's it. He goes, yeah, I have, I've got, uh, they got two albums out. Here, I'll put this on. He put on the album Ride the Lightning. So, and, and, and that's like one of those moments 
in, in your life where you remember where you were, what you were doing. I remember I was in his basement. You probably know what the smell of his basement is too. Yeah. At the I, time. I remember how, the color of the fucking tile, yeah. everything vividly. He had a huge boom box. Again, uh, his family was probably just a mid-level family, but I was so poor. Even a big boom box made me think you're fucking rich. You know, like totally. He, 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 and he was so in touch with music. He, this guy was great. So he puts on Ride the Lightning. I remember I was on his skateboard, just standing on it, kind of going back and forth. And that acoustic intro starts and then it goes into Fight Fire with Fire. <clears throat> I was immediately hooked by the speed and ferociousness of Fight Fire with Fire. Then it went into Ride the Lightning, which I remember right now, it struck me as this epic fucking song. And then when uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls came, the third track, that fucking intro and the bass, and then that fucking, that, that riff. That was it, man. I was so fucking floored that um, I begged him to dub me Ride the Lightning on a blank cassette. Again, I couldn't afford to go to Kmart and buy the fucking cassette for whatever it was, nine bucks at the time. He dubbed it for me along with Kill Em All. Um, he made me tapes of uh, um, Show No Mercy Slayer. He's like, you need to listen to this. You got to check this out. And that whole fucking time changed my life. I realized I wanted to be a guitar player then. Now, I was always interested in guitar. My mom, because I begged her and begged her when I was age 12, I got a guitar, acoustic guitar for Christmas. But I didn't really take to it. I just kind of fucked around. Uh, you know, like some kids typically beg their parents for shit. They get it and they don't really do anything. And that's kind of what I, I did. Mine was uh, a ventriloquist dummy. No, I What's wanted that? it for so a, oh, mine yeah. was a ventriloquist dummy, <laughs> dummy, dude. I got it, and I, it was one of those things where I got You're it like, for Hello, Christmas. All right, I'm fucking, done. <laughs> it was literally like two weeks later that shit just sat in the closet, dude. Quick side note: I was born. I just I don't know. I was born the day Ride the Lightning came out, July 27th, 1984. It was my birthday, so That's I'm like. Awesome. I don't know what that is in uh, Sagitt or Leo or whatever the fuck it is, but I feel like that's a, a part of it. <laughs> yeah, that's your horoscope. Your horoscope is just, it's lightning. Well, and, I, and I write I, it. I, a couple, a number of things are happening at this time when I saw so I'm, I'm like, like I was, I don't know, 15. And um, my mom, she wouldn't buy me an electric guitar. Um, not only could she not really afford it, but she's like, well, I got you that acoustic guitar. You never played it. Why do you want an electric guitar? I'm like, please, please. So she actually let me trade in my acoustic guitar that she had bought me four years before and some money I'd saved up. And I got my first electric guitar, which was a red Kramer uh striker guitar with one pickup and i wanted that the guitar I, I wanted that particular one because um i was fucking insane for the movie crossroads with ralph macchio yep 
Steve, Steve Vai. That guitar duel. Um, to this day, it's one of my favorite movies. Talk about being young and watching something over and over and over and over and over again. That fucking guitar duel, that movie, I couldn't get enough of it. Can, so we, the could, guitar, can we give props to real quick? Can we give props to yeah. Machio for like, like, you know, like what, like literally like he's maybe not playing. Ex- it's not exactly him playing, but like him watching him play it. I'm like, you know, when you see those people play guitar or they mime it or something like that. And you're like, that's you bullshit. Totally know you that person like immediately. Know how to fucking play, yeah. Like I watched Ralph right. Machio. And I'm like, that's probably one of the best. I mean, mimes i've ever seen if it's a mime i don't know i think it's they're i think they're both steve i right i'm one of the sickest air yeah. ever dude <laughs> hell yeah dude yeah dude so well joel uh in the movie and on on the soundtrack yeah vi does both parts he does his part as the the devil's guitar player jack butler and he does ralph macho's guitar parts too also steve Vai. uh tutored Ralph Macchio just to get the somewhat of the fingerings to be more realistic in that. So kind of a crash course in playing guitar, if you will. Yeah. Trying to make it look screen accurate, but that's some trivia that, that I picked up. He did a great job, man. I mean, he was like sliding in the right spots and doing all, I mean, it was like, you know, you could tell he wasn't actually playing it, but you could tell like, as far as like someone that's miming, it's like one of the best mimes I've ever seen. Probably. Right. I mean, to that average person off the street who doesn't play an instrument, seeing that they wouldn't they wouldn't know, you know, and yeah, yeah. And all the yeah. parts where there's dynamic changes with this, some of those shit he's playing um, a little bit better than a movie. You know, <laughs> a little better than what? A little bit better than a dubbed Kung Fu movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Which, by the way, Cobra Kai starts tomorrow, season four. I was just gonna say, do you watch Cobra yeah, Kai? I really, I really like that series. Yeah, me too. Dude, yeah, yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah good. that's one of those shows that me and my wife like to watch too. It's, and it's fun to get you get nostalgia out of it. it starts the nostalgia they do really good. They do really good at like bringing you back to that time. Like, and they know. do good at making fun of what they used to think was sick back then. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hidden jokes. Oh, yeah. exactly. There's a lot of that 80s rock, rock and, and, and metal. Um, you know, I just love how he's like, You want to be badass or whatever. You gotta um, be badass, dude. Speaking <laughs> of which, the guy, um, the, the character in Cobra Kai, this is relevant to this spiel I'm giving you on my history of what I listened to as a kid. Johnny, the, the blind air guy in Cobra Kai. Yeah. Last season, he wearing zebra shirt. That band oh, zebra wearing that in a couple of the episodes. I told my wife, I'm like, look, he's wearing a zebra shirt. I've never seen anyone wear a zebra shirt, man. That's fucking like dead accurate for the time. Uh Johnny would have been a uh whatever, a hot stud uh teenage guy, you yeah, know. Yeah. But um anyway, so that that Kramer guitar I bought looked like Jack Butler's guitar from Crossroads, so I wanted that, and that's so that was my first elect, electric guitar. And then, you know, as time went on, I I got more and more serious about playing, and and took guitar lessons. And then so much shit musically came my way in a short period of time, so. By the time I got my first 
electric guitar and I had been turned on to all these bands that uh, the skateboarder friend of mine turned me on to again, Slayer's early stuff, Metallica's first two albums. Right after that, the year 1986 fucking came upon us and Master of Puppets came out, uh, Slayer, Rain and Blood, Megadeth, Peace Cells, Dark Angel, Darkness Descends was out. Corrosion album was out. I remember that. I was getting into heavier and heavier and heavier shit. And then I was taking guitar lessons from a great teacher who was classically trained, like a legit classical guitar player, a legit um, expert on music theory and all this stuff. But he was also in this amazing thrash metal band called Numbskull. And Numbskull at the time had an album out, their first album, Ritually Abused. So I thought this guy was like God because he had everything I was looking for in a guitar teacher. This guy was it because I wanted to learn principles of music, some music theory, but I also wanted to learn all these heavy metal techniques, riffing, whether it's James Hetfield, you know, Jeff Hanneman, um, other guys, I want to learn how, like how, how they fucking played that stuff. And this teacher is the whole package. Yeah. He's the whole package then. And then, uh, so I started learning more. Uh, All I did was fucking play guitar every waking moment. I wasn't in school or doing anything. I was playing guitar constantly and um, I started writing my own songs at an early age as I'm 16, you know, 16, 17. Um, I didn't want to be a guy who played covers in a cover band. I would grown up in my teenage years now going into high school with all these guys that were in bands. Mind you, I'm back in, in, in an Illinois at this time, too. So. Okay. I mean, yeah, uh, up to 16, uh, moved back in 16 area. Yeah. By 1986, I was in Illinois back in the birds of Chicago. Um, and all these guys I went to school with that played, you know, instruments, they were all in cover bands and, and they were in the shit that I, I was not into like at the time, hair metal stuff. Um, they were in it for for pussy. That's what they were mm-hmm. picking it. I was like, so again, I'm like, no, man, I'm 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 here to write music that'll rip your fucking head yeah. off. Even as a guy, I knew that in my head, right? Like, I know what I want to do, and they'd be like, tell me, oh, threat at the time, you know, thrash was really big. Dark Angel was. Even above Slayer for a minute was my favorite band. So I get shit from these guys saying, oh, that thrash metal sucks. And then in my pursuit of heavier and heavier music, because I couldn't get enough of heavier, more extreme music, I discovered death metal. So um, in, in some of the Inklings, the first shit I'd hear, like Celtic Frost, 
Um, and then death, of course, came along, then sepultura. And then, you know, by the time I'm 18, 19, now I'm immersed in so much great fucking metal. I'm talking Morbid Angel, Carcass, Terrorizer, who to this day is one of my favorite bands of all time. Like the grind side of stuff. Napalm. Oh, yeah, dude. Thousand percent. You know, Santana, man. And, and it just, it went from there. So, uh, so by the time I was a, a senior in high school, I had already met my singer, Joe, who was the original singer for Broken Hope. And we were like, we're going to form, we formed a band and we're like, we're going to, you know, uh, I was turning him on to death metal and he was actually, he was in the thrash and he was also in a lot of these punk and hardcore bands. So you guys, sorry, you guys met up after you had already been introduced to the more extreme sides of metal and shit. Right. We were in high school together. So as I was, my tastes were evolving in the heavier stuff. Uh, Joe and I had been friends. We, we rode a school bus together. We lived in the same neighborhood. So I would turn him on the bands he hadn't heard. He would turn me on the bands that um, I hadn't heard at the time. So for example, um, he, he was really into like um, crumb suckers and mucky pop and SOD and um, <clears throat> a bunch of other band, Crow Mags and stuff, and yeah, hard, hardcore punk. And then the bands I was into, like some some of which was was hardcore, like Agnostic Front and Corrosion Conformity, specifically the Animosity album, and then um, and then Death Metal. Like I turned Joe on the Morbid Angel, Flatter. Um, you know, cryptic slaughtered man, fucking Joe love worship. Yeah, cryptic. he shoved cryptic slaughter down my throat. Right, Here's one the, of the first blasphemies, man. I told uh, Scotty from Cryptic Slaughter a few years ago how much um, Joe loved cryptic slaughter. He fucking just yeah love that band. So he again. <laughs> He ran cryptic slaughter down my throat. A really cool thing. Uh, one time, I, this is just relevant to cryptic slaughter and just a little bit of um, trivia or something. But I had, uh, had some of the guys like uh, from uh, Municipal Waste, uh, Iron Reagan, at, stayed at my house one time, like several years ago. And um, Tony the singer of Municipal Waste had a cryptic slaughter uh, hoodie. And I was like, dude, fuck. I gave him the whole spiel about how Joe worshiped cryptic slaughter and turned me on to him and blah, blah, blah. And Tony had gotten that hoodie from, I, I think it was from Scotty from cryptic slaughter. And so, but Tony gave it to me in honor of Joe. And I always thought that was just so fucking cool of him to do, but Oh man, that's super rad. That's super rad. Um, yeah, yeah. That was really cool. So to both of them, huh? I 
It's wild to think before you keep going, now that you were just bringing up Joe, it's wild to think that you uh, introduced him to death metal. And now he's kind of like the origins of that guttural style, dude. Like, totally, dude. Yeah. Like and, all that and- shit, all so many vocalists are trying to do what that dude kind of like invented, you know? Yeah. I, uh, it, it, it is funny when you think about me turning Joe on to what we would call the legendary death metal bands like Morbid Angel, for example. And the thing was, um, and this is relevant to Joe's vocal approach, was, um, for example, when I, when I had uh, bands that Joe and I loved, were um, like when we were tape trading and all this shit, you know, um, when Broken Hope formed, we formed that band and named that band right as we were graduating high school. And soon after we had, you know, a couple demos out and got our first record deal. But there was this window of time where certain bands and albums on say on earache okay records you couldn't get those albums in any just any store they didn't have licensing in in the united states like in 1989 we would have to buy altars of madness or terrorizers world downfall or you know entombed carcass um paradise lost's first album lost paradise those were imports and they cost a fucking fortune back in the day be like 30 bucks back then for, for a CD. But crazy by that time, you know, I was working and graduated high school. So I, what money I could save, I would buy all these import CDs. And that's how I turned this stuff on to Joe. Cause Joe didn't have the means to go buying a bunch of import CDs. So it was a cool thing because Joe turned me on to bands I didn't know about and I turned them on to this stuff. So when we started Broken Hope, um, you know, we were like really into death and uh, obituaries first album, Slowly We Rot. And um, it was Ross from Immolation who one day gave me via mail, he made me a cassette of all these bands that he had music from. And one of the bands, um, well, by the way, I was really into Emulations demos. They were fucked before they even had an album. Man. They're just, they're always always good though, bro. That was like the path Joe and I were on, you know, with death metal. We we knew, I mean, Broken Hope was definitely, when we formed the band, we were like, we were a fucking death metal band in our mission. You got a dark groove for sure. Right, the heaviest, catchiest fucking music, right? Yep. You know, Diego, that's what I'm talking about exactly. So, um, so when we when we got this, we got this tape from Ross of Immolation one day, and he had a demo of um he had all these demos of these bands. He had Paradise Lost demo. And he, I remember Ross in his letter said, we to hear this band, Paradise Lost, the heaviest fucking band ever. Just listen to them. And we also had like Deicide's 
uh, demo, uh, which was really fucking heavy. Um, they were called Amon or some shit we, back then, right? Yeah, they were Amon. We, uh, Ross also sent me a demo by a band called Nihilist, who were entombed. Yep. Uh, later and so we were like wow this is fucking awesome and and, t- and like that to this day that first paradise lost album uh lost paradise is one of my favorite death metal albums and it was also a huge influence on joe um he he loved that album too um so much and when when we were doing our first demo and 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 writing more and more original music. I distinctly remember Joe and I talking about vocals and his vocal approach. And at the time, you had David Vincent, you had, uh, you know, Jeff Walker, and you had John Tardy of Obituary and Chuck Schuldiner. These were like quick references of like, Brutal vocal style, this and that. Well, and Bill Steer and the drummer for, for Carcass too, but they had like their harmonizers as opposed to their natural vocals. In fact, that's why I mentioned Bill Steer with uh, Jeff Walker because he would Bill would do those sick gurgly real right. right. <laughs> oh, and I would be like, "What the fuck did he just say?" Well, <laughs> And then the drummer comes on. (laughs) Exactly. I I love that shit. So good. So Joe, in his wisdom and working on his craft, he was like, um, he never took like vocal lessons or anything, but he got these tips on, I think um, his mom had some kind of experience with singing. And she had said, you know, sing from your diaphragm, not your throat and this and that. Gave him just some tips. And he really took that to heart. And he said, um, if we're going to be on this mission to be the heaviest death metal band possible, I'm really going to uh, go for this guttural approach. And mind you, everyone knows the term guttural no bullshit. I yeah. never not back then though. Joe's the one who used that word guttural. Dude, that's so good. And and he just evolved from there. And he Damn. he had that in his head, and it just worked out for the chemistry and ingredients yeah. we're putting together for broken hope. Got that fat beard too to make him all right quick quick side note i'm listening to lost paradise right now and what the fuck <laughs> this is like so good and i'm like listening to um the song oh, paradise lost the whole fucking album man it it's is so good i'm like what the fuck the fucking shit paradise shit. each you album like madonna yeah so separate <laughs> nothing like that first album and it's very special man it's crazy, man. It's like right in the same vein as everything that was coming out, but a way different, a little darker, adding the like weird dark harmonies and dark uh, riffs in yeah, the background yeah. and shit. They toured with a uh, cannibal or something too, didn't they? Back in the day, who uh, Paradise Lost? Yeah, I think on the they toured it... with Morbid Angel. Oh, more okay, that's what it was. Uh, yeah, for Blessed are the Sick. Yeah, and and yeah, and and Creator too. They were on the, yep. the Coma Souls. Yep. So, 
Um, so anyway, um, I saw that shit too. That's kind of how I <laughs> listening for pleasure and seeking heavier and heavier music went hand in hand with one of my personal tastes were, you know, what I wanted to listen to as a fan and what I wanted to pick up as a guitar player, you know, at, at the time, again, late 90s, I'm sorry, late 80s, uh, early 90s. And, um, and, and all this stuff culminated to writing music nonstop and, you know, improving our musicianship. And then eventually we got a record deal. So wait, let's back it up real quick. Cause you were talking about you and Joe wanting to start the band, but we never really got oh. into like how it really got the ball rolling and all that shit. Who else you got in, in the mix and how all that shit. Worked okay. Out. So, um, we had, uh, I'm, I'm real, really going to go deep here with dude, this. Dude, this is where, this is where exactly where, oh. should, where you can go deep. Before Broken Hope, like, as we know, Broken Hope, just even the name and, and where we went from that point forward. Before that, Joe and I did have startup bands in high school. And one band that we had, um, we called Decimation. And... Yeah. Um, what, what's kind of funny is, uh, I, I soon learned like outside of the little capsule I was in, in, in the burbs of Chicago, there's a whole world out there full of metal bands and mm -hmm. tape traders and all this. And I had yet to get involved in the underground tape trade and, 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 and pick up magazines from Europe. You know, I was reading magazines here in the States. Um, I was only as good as what I had contact with. But there was this period where I eventually met some some guy, great guys. Again, Ross from Immolation, um, a guy named Ed Farshti, who had this awesome fanzine called The Book of Armageddon. And oh, shit. Um, John McEntee, uh, before incantation, um, all these guys, uh, Will, Will Raymer, Mortician. I made all these connections. All these guys actually came to my house where I lived with my dad for, um, this one Milwaukee metal fest three way back in the day. And yeah. how long has that been going yeah. on, dude? Well, I could have all these guys, I, you know, party, do whatever. So I had all these guys stay at my house and I made these connections. And in turn, those connections, that's, those are the guys that turned me on to the, the, the death metal underground and tape trading. And, um, and then I was picking up magazines from Europe, like metal forces and, and Kerrang from this one record store that carried that stuff. So I soon learned that, I named my band Decimation with Joe, but there was already like 12 other Decimations on there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we changed the name from that to like Vile Demise. I remember that was one name we had. And again, we're just, I'm writing all original stuff and we're, Joe and I are jamming with guys from high school. Only because like 
well, this guy's got a drum set that his yeah. mom bought him. We could jam at his house. And, you know, when you're young and you're jamming, um, for all you guys that are, have been in bands, maybe you share this experience, but it's trial and error. You don't really understand when you're jamming with people that some are dedicated, some aren't. You have musical differences. And believe me, mm-hmm. everyone Joe and I were jamming with, they had no clue what death metal was. You know, the fucking heaviest band they ever heard was either Exodus or Metallica or something. You know, yeah, so could be all around, huh? You know, yeah. So we were continuously, Joe and I were continuously trying to find the right guys to jam with. And what happened was after decimation and vile demise, um, I never stopped writing music and i also wrote all the lyrics for all the bands that joe and i did joe would come up with ideas and stuff but i was always a writer in fact my love of writing goes back to childhood and i started writing my first short stories and uh everything you know i was still in grade school i was really into writing so writing uh, stories and, and stuff fiction came before me being a musician. So when I finally did become a guitar player and, you know, uh, form bands, it just came natural to me to write lyrics. And in fact, uh, a couple guys who influenced my lyric writing who didn't sing were like Gene Hoagland, the dark angel wrote these badass lyrics for dark angel and, um, you know, my hero, Jeff Hanneman, he was writing these goddamn awesome lyrics for Slayer. Um, and so, but thing, so I was thinking, wow, if these guys do that, I could do that for my band. So that always worked out. So point yeah. of mentioning all that is I continued writing lyrics and riffs as Joe and I continue trying to put bands together not not to segue too much but what we have a question from uh you keep bringing up jeff hanneman so you uh you know we have a question from uh jesse who's been uh, from incinerate who's been on here um he's saying that you have like an original jeff hanneman guitar or something like that yeah i've got um well that's a whole convo if you want to pin that Okay, let's pin that. Let's go back to it. We'll go back to it because I've been like I've been like marinating on that for a long. I'm like, what the fuck? Because it's oh, like that, yeah. that would be that's like a, a yeah, like one of the top pieces of my life to have, you know? Oh yeah, it's not just one. I've got like several of Jeff's guitars. Jesus. Okay, um, we'll get back to it. We'll get back. I'll, we'll bring it back up. Um, um. So back to uh. So me writing lyrics and, and, and writing riffs and Joe and I trying to make a band. Um, it's funny because when I was a teenager and I start my first lyrics that I was writing, I would write, they're pretty corny lyrics when I think about it. Cause I was writing about like killing posers. <laughs> yeah. Kind of punk rock stuff. Metal, metal Dude, with, that was so, a serious dude, thing back then though. Yeah. <laughs> no. I didn't quite. Posers will die. Yeah. <laughs> quite yeah. Complete my my love of my passion for horror that 
obviously plays a huge role in my lyrics in all of Broken Hope's history. Um, I was all about, again, killing posers, moshing, you know, uh, metal is the greatest. You know, that was like my early. Yeah, death to false metal. Yeah, yes, exactly. Were you you mad at an ex-girlfriend during the writing of Remember My Members? There was, uh, well, that's another thing. Those are rad lyrics, dude. I gotta, I'll put a pin in. Yeah, why is everybody trying to steer him off course right now? Because <laughs> so, he's got, got such a long history, man. He got a- I, I did say in an interview like a year or two ago when I wrote the album Bowels of Repugnance, which has the song Remember My Members, that album was a lot of that album was written in the midst of me being completely pissed off at life. And some of it had to do with girlfriend. Some of it had to do with my living situation and where I was at life. And uh, I'm very thankful for that anger because it made me write a very vicious fucking broken hope album. But I'll tell you about that. We got to, we got to do the evolution, bro. We got to (laughs) get. Sorry. (laughs) This interview will be done in eight hours. So. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I got to work tomorrow, dude. It's funny you mentioned that, Diego, because that that's a fucking. Yeah. But so um, anyway, um, in our search for fi- Joe and I, in our search for finding the right people to jam with in a band, um, I got wind of this sick drummer. That was from a nearby town called Antioch, Illinois. And that drummer. Oh, shit. Wait, real quick. I know everybody's doing it, but uh, Steve's from Antioch. He was just on the last episode. Not Antioch, Georgia. California. 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 Yeah. California. I didn't know there was another one. All right. There was another Sorry. one. Yeah. And what's funny about that, Anthony, is when I first discovered Sadis through the underground tape trading shit. Sadis's demos and everything were everywhere. Plus, you know, I'd always see Chuck from Death wearing Sadis shirts and stuff. And when I started collecting fanzines or flyers for demos and see Sadis, I'd always see Antioch, California. I'm like, what? There's another Antioch? (laughs) Sick, dude. So, uh, so anyway, Antioch, or sorry, Antioch, Illinois is where Ryan Stanek was from, our drummer for Broken Hope original drummer and um so through a friend who knew ryan and told me about ryan um he said hey ryan would like to meet you he's looking to form a band and he's jamming with this this guy um he said you could drop by the rehearsal and um and talk and and check them out maybe jam with them so when i went First met Ryan Stanek. Um, he was really young. I mean, he was like 16. Um, and he had this huge white drum set. It was super fucking big. And uh, and I was very impressed by that, you know, because he had these two double bass drums and rototons and all this shit. I'm like, wow, this guy just look at his drum set. He, this guy means business, you know? So I, I, I sat back and he started playing. Um, oh, what the fuck was it? Uh, 
criminally insane or piece by piece or some some off Slayer's Reign of Blood. And I was just like, I'd never seen a drummer locally who fucking could play, you know, Dave Lombardo style drums. So my jaw dropped. I'm like, this fucking kid's got it. So um, at the time, this guy he was jamming with who was there, they were playing cover songs. And Ryan was like, well, can you play this song? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know that song. I don't play covers. I got my own original stuff. So I'm with you, bro. I, what's that? I said, I'm with you. I, you know, oh, please, oh yeah. Please say that. I'm on there, but I got yeah. like five or six songs I could show you if you want to use them for the band, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I, that's what I did. I showed and I show him riffs. And this other guy at the time he, Ryan was with was like real negative and not into anything I had to, show Ryan, of course, I don't know if he felt intimidated or whatever. He he was another guitar player. So I'm like, all right, whatever. So that we never jammed again. It just didn't work out. And fast forward a few months later and um, at my house, I used to, when I lived with my dad, my dad would always leave on the weekends to go stay at his girlfriend's house. So every weekend I had our whole house to myself and I would, I would always throw parties every fucking weekend. And nice. it was always people I knew from that were my age from the neighborhood. And, you know, I, I had a guy, I mean, we're all underage, but I had a guy I could always get cases of beer from. And, um, you know, my play, my house was the, the party place on the weekends. People, you know, we could, my friends and I could drink, um, jam music and, you know, guys, people had a place to fucking get laid, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like everyone wanted to get out of their parents' house. My place is the place to go. So one night Ryan Stanick shows up at my house. He wasn't invited. Someone had tipped them off. Oh yeah. Jeremy Wagner. He has these parties on the weekend, blocks, swing by. So Ryan came by with another guy who was a guitar player that he was jamming with. And um, Joe was there and Joe goes, hey, Jer, uh, well, we started talking about bands and, and, and shit, what Ryan was doing then and what Joe and I were doing. And Joe goes, hey, show show these guys some of your riffs, your new riffs. So I had like a couple songs completely written, start to finish on guitar. And I fucking plugged in my amp and I played the, all this original stuff. And Ryan and this guitar guy he was with were completely blown away. They're like, holy fuck, this is awesome. No one how are you writing this shit? Whatever, you know, uh, they were just really impressed and, and they wanted to, Ryan wanted to jam with me again. So from what I remember, I said, if I jam with you, Joe comes with me, we're a package deal. Mm-hmm. And he was like, fine, that's cool. So we went the next weekend, Joe and I to Ryan's house. Ryan lived with his parents. He was still in high school and uh, he had a jam room in the basement. So I brought my amp over. Joe's with me. 
Um, they, there's this little tiny PA and we're just going to jam through riffs I've written and see what happens. So <clears throat> Ryan and this other guitar player were called Crypt. That was the name they were calling their band. So after we jammed with these guys, this other guitar player, he had some riffs from what I remember and him and Ryan had songs that they had done together and they played those for us. We all liked what was going on and we decided, Hey, let's definitely make a band. So they were adamant, Ryan and this other guitar player were adamant um, about calling the band Crypt because that's what they'd been playing under for forever. So um, we're, Joe and I were like, okay, that's fine. We'll call ourselves Crypt. So we, we jammed with these two guys for a few months and over the course of time we were jamming with them Ryan was really great to deal with and we were just the chemistry was right Joe, Ryan and I just clicked that other guitar player was really an asshole he's a little older than all of us he was kind of a bully you know he'd throw temper tantrums and you know try to fight with us if he didn't like the way things were going that weren't going his way. So, um, so things eventually happened where uh, that guy got into a fight with Joe and me one day. And we said, that's it. We're fucking done. We're not going to jam with you guys anymore. So we packed our shit up, went back home. And that night Ryan called us and, and begged us not to, quit on him he said he wouldn't jam with that other guitar player anymore because he wanted to make make sure joe ryan and me all stayed together so joe and i were like all right that's cool um so he obviously felt a chemistry that he didn't feel with that dude yeah he felt it and, and he knew that guy was really a real pushy asshole and just uh and he wasn't the guy was Kind of like what I recollect, you know, he's like Mr. Know-it-all. My way or the highway. He tried making prima donna fucking, you know, and he wasn't into the kind of music, frankly, that we were we we were into, you know, this heavier and heavier stuff. So the next weekend, Joe and I came back to Ryan's jam spot, set up. And we spent this one day, it was like a Saturday weekend. And we, we, we sat down on the floor of the jam spot and we all had notebooks because we were all going to come up with names for our new band. We were not going to be called Crypt anymore. That was off the window. So um, as I mentioned to you guys, I was always a writer. So I had, um, all these short stories and like dark poetry things that I had written during high school. And one of these poems I had, had the, had the name broken hope in a line of the poem. And in fact, I I know I have it somewhere in my, in my archives. I, I, I fucking save everything. And I remember the line was like, like a woman's, her name was like, uh, 
Tatiana Broken Hope or something. <laughs> but I thought Broken Hope was a cool name. I put it on the list of names we had. So we, the three of us, after we spent time writing down names, we wanted to call the band and, and kind of vote on. Um, Broken Hope was the one name that Joe and Ryan really liked. You know, it, it had to it had to be a unanimous decision. You know, we're naming a fucking band. It's an important mm-hmm. and um what was really cool that Joe and I discussed and pointed out after like he was like, I like the name Broken Home. Ryan's like, that name's great. And and Joe and I were like, No, it's great about the name Broken Hope. It reminds us of a band that we fucking worship, which was Paradise Lost. And Paradise Lost, like Broken Hope, the name. Yeah. yeah. Like not typical Beth names. It's still kind of parallel, you know. But when you hear, yeah, when you hear the name and then the music that goes with it, mm-hmm. it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, the music definitely goes with the name too. Paradise Lost is bleak and dark and heavy as far as a name paradise lost and then broken hope i mean what's you know more bleak than your hope being broken <laughs> Me and you know what i mean i don't know yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, when, when i was thinking it was like hope for a paradise that's you know, lost and, and hope for a paradise yeah. that's lost. broken hope. <laughs> the yeah. hope for a paradise is broken and lost. Yeah. Motown coming out yeah. here, bro. <laughs> so that's how it happened. That's how yeah. it came up that's with rad. So how'd you so I, I talk I mentioned this, I think it was on our Instagram. What was the um the artist and the concept like for your logo? Because you guys definitely still to this day have the most like one of the most sickest logos yeah. for sure. Well, um, last, last month was the 30th anniversary of our album Swamp and Gore. Right. So we spent the whole month going down memory lane with some of that evolution. So the and logo- I watched that too. And I was actually stoked. Cause I was like, yeah, dude, we get, the- to, we can talk about this anniversary thing too. Yeah. yeah right. Totally. Right. Yeah. Just, I mean, it just happened, you know, last month, the anniversary. I love so how that should happen. Post- we did is I dug up the original artwork for the Broken Hope logo that you see now. And that logo was done by a guy named Dan Hazy. So uh, Dan, I don't know whatever became of him. Um, he, he was a guy from the Chicago metal scene who um, he was a sick artist. He did logos for other bands. And um, during Broken Hope's evolution in the early years after we named the band, I had a logo that we used for the band, like on our first demo. And then Ryan had a logo he created that we used for a few things. But none of the logos we hand drew really, really cut it. They weren't fucking anything great. So this guy, Dan Hazy, who was into broken hope and when i say into broken hope he had only seen us play as a local unsigned band but he was really crazy about our music and we we didn't even have uh did he cruise uh, a practice an album yet we had our demos out but uh-huh. we didn't have an album so one day 
Dan sends us a couple logos he had done via mail, sent it to our, our PO box that we got all our mail at. And um, the fucking one design that we held on to, which um, was done in like colored pencil, it's pretty much the logo you see to this day. Over the years, Dan Hazy's logo has morphed and, and gotten more streamlined, but it's the same logo. Yeah. And if you look at the Swamp and Gore album, the original album that came out on Grand Corps International, that's the logo Dan Hazy created. And yeah, when we saw that logo that day, we took it out of the envelope. We were fucking blown away, and we we're like, "That's that's the logo we're going to yeah. use." So that's the logo we've we've had to this day. But Dan Hazy, um, all credit goes to him, man. He was again this local Chicago land guy. He might have even been from Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure. He he was from the Midwest, and I think later he he went and joined the Navy. And uh-huh. I never heard from him again, but um, and I always remember his name. So that's that's how the logo happened. And we got that uh-huh. one right when we got our record deal with Grand Corps International. So the timing was right. We had this great logo in place, and then you know we did our first album and all that good stuff. Yeah, how'd you guys come about getting signed for the first time? We had we had uh, two demos out um, that were really had done really well in in the uh, death metal underground. And when our second demo came out, um, we got huge exposure because it got the demo got reviewed in Metal Maniacs magazine and Metal Forces magazine, and um, that got us <clears throat> huge exposure and a ton of people wrote to us at our PO box because the magazines put, you know, our fan club address and stuff in there. So um, we were just, we had demos just flying out the door uh, to people worldwide. So that, that underground network really helped make the band uh, a name out there. And people really knew like who broken hope were and all this stuff. And, that's what helped us get our first record deal because the A&R guy at Grand Corps International, he knew um, about the name we had in the underground and, and there was kind of a buzz on the band. And it was a time where um, all these other death metal bands were getting signed uh, left and right, Immolation, Suffocation, um, Cannibal Corpse, on and on, you know. So you're talking like 1990, 91 is when our album came out, the first yeah, album, yeah. The Gore. Um, so that's kind of what really, you know, the the our 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 name and buzz in the underground is kind of what got us our our deal. Plus, we um, I think the A and R guy came to see us play a concert live, and that really solidified everything. So that's I have a the original. Uh, Swamped and Gore that I actually was my first purchase of the album not at the time because like I said I'm younger I'm 37 so I came across it used at uh, Amoeba but it's the original yeah. CD release with the old original <laughs> artwork Grindcore yeah. put it out because then after yes. that Metal Blade 
signed you guys and then bought that contract and re-released it under the metal blade yeah right that all happened New artwork yeah, and that all that all shit. in short order our our album came out in november uh 1991 so 30 years ago last month after that came out we were doing regional shows and we um and 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 some other shows out of state and then we got offered to do a mini tour of canada uh so it was the first time we ever had gone to canada and now by this time you know it's 1992 and milwaukee metal fest six was happening uh that summer of 92 and um when we play we were asked to play that and that was a huge fucking uh opportunity for us one it was the biggest show <clears throat> that we would have played to date at the time there's like six thousand people there it was in this arena mecca arena in milwaukee so and, that shit started um, in 86 what's you that? said it you just said milwaukee metal fest six and eight and six so and that was in 92 so that means in 86 was when they started doing they, that festival huh they started it sometime in the 80s. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when. No, I'm just saying, if it, did they do it annually? Was that I mean, what it was? They did it annually. Yeah, it'd probably be 86 or. Yeah, I just, I just reversed. Yeah, I just subtracted yeah. six and did math. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I did some yeah, math. It, it had been around a while. Um, so when we did that Milwaukee Metal Fest show, um, uh, Swamp and Gore hadn't even been out a full year. Um, it was really amazing for us because like King Diamond introduced Broken Hope. It was fucking so just really Whoa, Jesus. And then when we went on, uh the place just went fucking nuts. Um there's like King Diamond himself came out and was like the MC hype man for Broken Hope. He was uh he was doing MC he was MCing like hosting the show, basically like the show. Um and so was Ricky Rackman from Headbangers Ball. He was the other m- MC. What a trip. So, uh, uh, yeah, King Diamond. If you go on YouTube, you can see it. We also have a documentary DVD on the band that came out in 2013. And we have that footage of King Diamond. But he's like, uh, please welcome Grindcore International recording artist. And then, like, in his fucking falsetto voice, broken heart. <laughs> like, fuck, fuck this yeah, dude. It was fucking great. And again, we just brought the fucking house down. We fucking went up there and just um, played for whatever. How stoked were you on that? Like, when you're waiting and you're yeah. hearing King Diamond fucking introducing you, dude. Oh, dude, it was mind blowing. Yeah. For real, like can't believe it. You I know? bet, dude. I'm 21 years old, and like I love King Diamond. I grew up with him, you know. Like, I know, dude. That's fucking wild. So, as it happened, like Marco Barbieri and Brian Slagle from Metal Blade Records were there, and they saw our whole show, and they were like, "This, this fucking band's fucking badass." Well, I had turned. Uh, my intentions for the Bro- Broken Homes Future getting on a, a bigger label. We only had to do one album with 
grindcore. So we were like locked down for a multi-album deal. So I started hitting up labels. And when I hit up Metal Blade, Marco Barbieri and Brian were like, yeah, you, you guys, uh, you're not tied down to grindcore. We saw you at Milwaukee Metal Fest 6. You guys were fucking, fucking badass. Uh, let's talk. So we, we talked and we did a demo for um, Metal Blade only that wasn't like released. And it had like um, three songs that would be on our next album, Bowser Repugnance. And uh, they fucking loved it and then offered us a deal. And the rest is history. Did you give them uh, that last beat on the demo? Was one of them Hobo Stew? I know one of them was, uh, I don't know if Hobo Stew was in there. I know the song Waterlogged was on there. And I uh, yeah. maybe, the, With the intro? maybe the dead half was on there too. Oh, man. But um, so we, we, uh, we got the deal from them. And when we signed with them, um, I was like, fucking, can you guys get our first album? Uh, re-release it. You know, we'd love to have Metal Blade have the full catalog and Grindcore. Yeah. Worked out a deal and they, they Metal Blade basically bought Swamp and Gore and, um, you know, boom, we were off and, and running. And then throughout the whole 90s, all our albums were put out through Metal Blade. And um, uh, and, and Swamp Thing Gore, again, back, back to the underground name and all that shit we had made for ourselves, that, that underground work really helped us with, like, when our album came out. Because that album, Swamp Thing Gore, sold like 10,000 copies, um, you know, right after when it was released it went through two pressings and did really well and uh anyway you know we we're on metal blade now and boom I, we were already writing the next album balls of repugnance and um you know we were just had a flame on lit under our asses we were just out to just keep putting out albums and tour and album and tour and you know do everything you know? So does the does it feel like the speed kicks up even more with Bowser Repugnance, all the touring and shit to uh, support that record? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, first off, when you talk about speed kicking up, the speed on like musically kicked mm-hmm. up on balls. Um, as I mentioned, to Diego, I remember writing that album. Brian Griffin and I were roommates. Uh, for years so we were roommates like right after I graduated high school I moved into this apartment he had and um, you know the, he, he wasn't even in Broken Hope then you know he joined Broken Hope prior to um, us doing our second demo and and then you know working you know producing our albums and everything so when I lived in that apartment with Brian um, th- during that time, 1992 is when I was really focused on writing the next album. And <clears throat> I was really pissed off at life. What, like we lived in this attic apartment and, and in this house. So like, it was like three stories high. The very top was an apartment, no air conditioning, extremely hot in the summertime. You know, it's the fucking 
basically you're, you know, we're in an attic. Yeah, dude. And if you've ever awesome. climbed into an attic in the summer, it fucking it's sucks. Brutal. Yeah, it's horrible. So we lived like that. Also, um, you know, I had like a part-time horribly shitty job. I had a, a car that was just a, just a piece of shit. It was like a, I had a Renault Alliance, which was a French car. And then after that, I had like a, a Chevette that had like the door, the driver's side door. You had to lift up and put <laughs> That's and actually more common than you think. Shut it. <laughs> and the windshield wasn't sealed and water would come in when it rained while you're driving. Um, I was, my existence was, uh, meager to say the least barely making ends meet um i was skinny as a rail i had uh mac and cheese probably once a day from the store because i was super cheap that's all i could afford and um and then i had girl problems too i had a this girlfriend who was a fucking complete psycho um she she would attack me and go nuts. And uh, of course I was crazy for her. Right. (laughs) But she, so all these factors, my personal life. Remember my members, you schizophrenic bitch. (laughs) So, and she came out in chunks. Don't forget that Diego, same album. So, but all these things inspired me. I put it all into my guitar because the one thing in my life that was reliable was my guitar was always there for me. And I had this band that was already off and running. We had a debut album out right in the second one. We're on metal blade. And I was laser focused to write a sick album, but all this shit in my life that pissed me off, I was able to tunnel and vent in. So um, that album is like pure rage for me. You know, it's like, I don't know, like some, some magazine back when that album came out, some, I forgot what mag it was. It was like rip magazine or, or something said balls of repugnance is like broken hopes, rain and blood. Cause it's just short and, and ferocious, you know? And uh, well, we would. I really just, love that album. I love. I, I I love balls of repugnance. But I was gonna say it's a callback to what we were talking about earlier, yeah. calling this a therapy. Yeah. Lay it out in the studio, lay it out on the stage, and now you're talking about it. This is an album that was happening right, right. At the time that you needed to yeah. let off the most steam, you know, exactly. and and it went. It filtered through the bowels of repugnance, dude. It it, it it did it did, and I I can remember uh, sitting on a on like a a bar stool in that apartment, plugged into a practice amp, and I was just the riffs were just fucking flowing. It was like one song after another, and uh, so uh, I would record. So I didn't forget riffs. I record on a, a cassette recorder. And then go to band practice and get with Ryan and go, hey, let's fucking here's some more songs. And then and then when that album came out, that's when we really had great opportunities to start happening for us. You know, tour offers. We were doing like real tours and shit. And um, 
Yeah, it was a good time, you know. Uh, Fuck yeah, dude. I mean, to so be, what, that's your what first one. That, that came out in 93, that album. So what band, what death metal band influenced your drummer to just throw in those, like, suit? Because he had one of the fastest blast beats, like the Cepho blast. Even on you know? Swamp he was fucking fast as fuck. He, uh, you know, man, uh, Ryan, <laughs> Ryan was like, uh, as a drummer, he was really into Neil Pert, I remember, which obviously there's no fucking blast beats there. And, and Dave Lombardo, again, no blast. It right. was, uh, I, I would say Ryan, much like Joe, because the three of us were, you know, the, the founding fathers of Broken Open. We were together all the time. Ryan was a guy like Joe who benefited from me turning him on to uh, Morbid Angel and Terrorizer. So yeah. Sandoval, who's fucking to me to this day a god, one of my favorite drummers of all time. Thousand percent. Terrorizer. I'm like, dude, listen to this. And and fucking that click with Ryan. And Ryan was a mm. he was a drummer's drummer. He was a guy working on his craft. Always awesome. he wasn't jamming with the band. He was on his own constantly working on techniques and and, and whatnot. And uh yeah, and you know, Diego, to that question about Ryan and how he got that blast down. I just chalk it up to, again, him hearing bands like, well, like our drummers like Pete Sandoval and then taking that like, to, level. you know what, in those days, on all those albums in the 90s, he never used a metronome or nothing, man. He was, he was, he was solid. Too. He was doing his own thing. You know what I mean? That's awesome. Yeah. It's definitely a precise like sound that he had, dude. And what I also love about just to add to what you guys are talking about and how he is as a drummer, like he's also very comfortable at, at uh, slower tempos as well. Like, yeah, I love how uh, Broken Hope was like, all you guys want to blast the fastest, you know, we're going to just we're going to take it down. We're going to fucking yeah. blast at this speed, like Pitbull Grin style and fucking. Yeah, and we're going to stay in that pocket. And and you guys are actually going to feel that because it was like a it was like a actually like beating you with it, you know? Yeah, there's multiple times. There's multiple like types of like aggression through slow and fast and death metal. Oh, totally. And there's there's make the stink face at like a slow thing to be like another stink face at a fast one. It's like there's different like pockets you could hang in and just to fucking. I'd say for all the bands back then, like Broken Hope was the most like down to groove. Like the groove was give me just a little taste of doom, huh? Yeah, it was yeah. just no, but it's just like they're they're more so like, like getting you to move and shit like yeah. and, and it doesn't matter what tempo or feel it's at, but it's like groove was just as important, you know, and other bands at that time were like just trying to be fast. But like listen to Swamp and Gore, there's like certain riffs that just make you want to like stomp around your room and shit, you know, <laughs> right, yeah. right. There, you know, we always. Well, when I say we, uh, well, I'll speak for myself personally. I always write music that I love to hear as a as a fan, and um, in turn, something that gives me joy to to perform. And 
the thing, the elements of, of death metal and grind that appeal to me and all right, I love blast beats. I, I love, again, I keep dropping Pete Sandoval's name, but like World Downfall has this precise blasting like you never heard. It's so, it's contained, it's so extreme, it's, it's just special. And I, there's something about grind done right. Same with fucking Napalm Death. I, I worship Napalm Death. Um, even Suffocation, the first album, Effigy of the Forgotten, the blasting on there is, is precise and it's lethal. That kind of, those are examples of blasting that I like. Mm-hmm. I love, I love the grind and, and play fast, but I like to mix it up too. Again, as a fan and someone who gets pleasure out of playing music, I love a motherfucking heavy ass riff that's catchy as fuck. The kind of riff that one, you can't get out of your head. The hooks are just so memorable. And then it's so heavy um, that, and I, I've used this example ton, ton of times in interviews, but I always say this, the kind of riff that makes you want to smash your fucking face through a cinder block or a plate glass window. Cause it's so fucking. And um, those are things that I love and I still draw from, whether it was from Swamp and Gore to this very day, I'm talking to you guys totally practically on New Year's Eve 2021. That's actually everybody's New Year's Eve by the time they hear this. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. Hell yeah. Those are, um, those are components that go into to my writing style and um, that I feel represents broken hope. Definitely. Group is essential, memorable riffs, um, grind. It, it just all wor- works together. You know, the, when it comes to technical depth metal, for me personally, the, the closest we've got to being super technical is on our fifth album. Um, and, and it, it was like, that's grotesque, right? Grotesque blessings. Yeah. 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 I was waiting to get to that because that, that, that was that one of those is just like loathing had some technical stuff, right? That was the album for, mm-hmm. um, but grotesque was where things took a major step up with technicality. And a lot of that had to do with Brian Griffin and also the state of broken hope. Um, during that songwriting process for that album, because we had lost our drummer, Ryan Stanek. We parted ways with him. Um, we had a new, we didn't have a bass player anymore. It was really Joe, Brian Griffin, and me. And then we had hired hands. So instead of writing as a group, like we always did, I mean, when I say writing as a group, I'd always write riffs at home, bring them to the band we'd work on together. Um, this time I was isolated writing by myself with no drummer. Brian was doing the same. And then we had a hired gun drummer that would work with my songs and Brian's. And it was just a real different process and stuff. And I was also busy doing other things in my life at the time. So Brian wrote a lot of the music on Grotesque. 
And he had just kicked things up to a, a fucking level of technicality that we had never touched before. And when I listen to Grotesque Blessings, the real technical songs like Wolf Among Sheep, mm-hmm. to Brian's credit, the, the that guitar work, it, what he wrote is just fucking floors me. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just super crazy in his approach and, and in that level of technicality on the flip side of that, I enjoy listening to that, but I did not like playing that kind of music. I found when I played something like Wolf Among Sheep, anything super technical, it gets to a certain point where I feel like, um, I don't know, I'm giving a guitar lesson mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, it does. It becomes. I like the groove. I like you're not you're not hyper focused on like a, the crowd fun. or anything. You're just like hyper focused on like I gotta nail this. Fuck, this is like all the exactly shit's going cool. on. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Super focused on what I'm playing note for note, and um, Brian's guitar, you know, work on that is so fucking good. I mean, he's such a sick fucking guitar player, but. For me personally, again, that's just not my style, I guess. You know, again, I like groove, I like the blast. Yeah, we've always had a technical element in the band. But obviously, since another, the album came out, level, you know, so, Jeremy, since the album came out and you were performed on it, obviously, it's like you uh, you were down to take chances yeah. with the project still and, and see what, what could come from it you know and either way it's like things are always learning experiences along the oh, way yeah. so it's like the, it's always the next one for us it's the same know? as like hemispheres for rush like they they did their crazy hemispheres album and, and you watch their documentary and they're like we're not doing that shit again you know it's like they're like they're like it was it was crazy it was pushing the boundaries but like they're they're all like yeah it's more of an experiment yeah. yeah exactly exactly you know it's one of those albums where like um there's definitely there's hardcore fans who love grotesque blessings they really love that album uh it's an album we don't really play any tracks off that album live now to that end there are a couple tracks um i'm i'm actually relearning right now so like chemically castrated we're gonna try to bring that back hopefully next year when we start doing shows and and whatnot because I feel it's important to try and weave in something from our entire catalog. Um, but that album, uh, that album was just a weird place in time, you know, and after that album came out uh, and to be clear, I, I love that album. It's a very special album. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound like you're saying anything bad about it at all. And it's the last album Joe Thychek ever did while he was alive. So that has a important meaning to myself. Totally broken hope history mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but again the band was kind of in this weird flux longtime members gone people in their own worlds and and right after that album came out uh joe actually quit the band uh he never toured on that album we we had different guys it was all hired guns at the end it was brian griffith and me with hired guns filling in all yeah. these on tour and and that's what actually led up to being in the ass man going on hiatus for 10 years because in 
by 2002, when we wrapped up uh, the last shows we, we ever did, um, you know, I kind of threw in the towel. I'm like, this doesn't feel like Broken Hope. We're constantly getting different guys to play on tour. It's not, it's not what the band was, you know, Joe, Joe's gone, Ryan's gone. Um, when we can get our shit together, let's do the band properly and, you know, come back to a new album. That said, I didn't know we'd be gone for a fucking decade. <laughs> a lot, a lot changed. We never got to come right back. And then, uh, but we, we finally were able to do, or I was able to do it, you know, uh, right around 2011, I started jamming with our drummer, Mike, who's in the band now. He's been jamming with me um, uh, for 10 years now or so. And during that hiatus, during that hiatus, you always kept on shredding, though, just at home. Yeah, I did a band called Lupara that did one album. um, And we did a video that... uh, got nominated for best metal video because headbangers ball at the time had returned. Jamie Josta was, was hosting it. Um, so yeah, I was still writing music. I was still trying to do something. And how that feel to think about headbangers ball back in the day and then be like, Oh shit. I know that another, I have these little surreal things. The older I get these, these things, little things come around full circle for me. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I feel the same way, dude. I, I totally, uh, feel, I think it happens. Like, you know, I'm always like, wow, the, the teenager inside me is freaking out right now. I can't believe yeah. this. You know, so, um, but anyway, you know, Broken Hope, uh, when I served Jamma with Mike in 2011, um, we were going to do a grindcore band called Earthburner which I had written stuff for. And we actually did an EP and a video for that, that I self-financed and you can hear the EP and see the video. It's, it's out there. Um, and, and that was pure grind. That was like terrorizer worship. You know, that was my whole thing. And I thought maybe Earthburner would be what I was going to do full time for musically. And, uh, and then I'd been talking to, before Earthburner, um, before I even jammed with Mike, when Joe was still alive, Joe and I reconnected and talked about bringing Broken Hope back. But then when Joe died, I'm like, fuck. I go, I don't think I'm going to do this. And what happened was I got together with Mike, started doing Earthburner. And for fun, we started fucking around with Broken Hope songs just to jam on them. And next thing I know, we're jamming like, you know, eight to 10 Broken Hope songs. It was a lot of fun. And I was hearing from people after Joe died, like, hey, you know, you're still here. You're Jeremy Wagner. Broken Hope's your baby. Um, Bring the band back. And, you know, I was giving it thought. It wasn't until we got approached by um, a management company and a booking agent together and said you you may not know it but there's a real love and interest and broken hope we have promoters around the world that would love to have you come back blah 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 um here's what we could offer you and so i took it seriously i already knew mike could play the the stuff and 
Um, it's just a matter of getting the right personnel. And it's like, who am I, who the fuck is going to try and fill Joe Pichek's shoes, right? So I reached out to a few different vocalists. Um, I even hit up uh, John Gallagher of Dying Fetus. He's always been a great friend and love Broken Hope. And um, that been we talked about having him be the vocalist. Um, but that didn't work out. And so there's a few other people. And then finally, Damien, you know, I reached out to him and um, it was like meant to be because. Yeah. Were you familiar with Gorgasm when you reached out to him? Was I familiar with Gorgasm? Yeah. Oh, I was familiar with Gorgasm. They're because they, they, they're from Chicago. Chicago yeah. And so uh, I've always known about them. You know the incestuous guys then too, huh? You know, and oh, who? Lynch, Danny. Incestuous guys, he said. The incestuous yeah. guys. Oh, I know of some of those guys. Yeah, I don't yeah. know them personally. Oh, okay, but but yeah. it's funny the different circles from like. So we were like in the northern burbs. I think those guys are all from the south side, right? Um, a lot of great bands from the south side of Chicago. Um, but um, Damien was always dead on, you know, with his vocals. He was guttural, extreme. And, the, and when, once we got to talking and I got to know him more, he, Damien's a guy who really works on his craft of being a sick vocalist. Like he practices his, his vocal style outside of band practice he'll practice in a car to to music he'll practice at home and he took um being our our, our vocalist very seriously you know when we talked to him and uh and it just it worked out fucking great so once we had mike and and damien that was really the core of of broken hope that 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 really was the catalyst along with this management company to really make the band a thing again. So once we filled in, um, what year is this? This would have been 2011 when we were assembling everything by that time, by 2012, we had a full lineup and that's when we, we, we did an announcement that, we're officially back and we had already secured a major North American tour as direct support to obituary. And we did this fucking great tour in 2012 with them. And on that tour, that's when century media came to see us on that tour. We played um, the key club in Hollywood and um, Robert camp from Century Media offered us a record deal right there and then. So that's after that tour, there's some actually a side note real quick on this because I wanted to bring this up just to be like, I don't even know if you knew about this, but on that tour that you're talking about, there were some dates that Damien couldn't do. And uh, I'm sitting at a Denny's in my, my bass play. I'm, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the vocalist of Severed Savior. I don't know if you know that band. But oh, I do. And D Damien uh, wore your band shirts a lot. 
Sick, he had a severed savior shirt. So he toured with severed before I was in the band. So he made a, a, a good connection with them back in the day and stuff like that. And uh, so, you know, fast forward to 2012, I'm on tour with severed out of Denny's and, and Murray tells me like, Hey dude, you want to, you want to do uh, some dates with broken hope. And at that time I'm like, fuck dude, that would be so sick. But my, first son was nine months old at the time and i was already kind of fucking feeling like god i've been away from home for two two and a half weeks already at the time when i got the call or whatever and i'm like ah dude i gotta decline it just because i'm like i already missed my family the touring thing is so hard when you're fucking you got family dude like i don't like to leave my kids for too long i don't even like to leave my kids to go to work dude i know (laughs) i love i just want to stay home and fucking with them dude and do you know i just want to be there i i used to uh i'd do anything back in the day to tour i didn't give a fuck throw me in a minivan i'll do 100 dates in a fucking minivan Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're talking 20s early 20s no problem um i i'm all about fly dates in and out do to do some great shows and fuck call it a day i hate i honestly hate touring now which mm-hmm. i never thought younger if i could do it the way that you just mentioned which is fly in fly out or you know drive here drive back and do like right. weekend warrior shit well, all the yeah, time and and that's, that's you know something that we could still do you know, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm totally yes. open for that, obviously, you know, with all the like, festivals, there's festivals. It's like, like yeah. I was going to say, we talked about it uh, earlier yeah. pre-pod is that I saw uh, Jeremy with Broken Hope at a uh, psycho fest and it was a fucking sick ass show. And then they played a couple of their shows and then he went home. It was like, that's boom, it, boom, 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 done. That's what I'm talking about, Joel. Like, the, like when we did psycho San Diego and L.A., bam, 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 that was fucking perfect. Flew in. The shows were fucking great. We hadn't played in forever, and that was really wonderful, you know. Like, and 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 um, Anthony, to your point too. Like, I'm at a place where, yeah, I, I miss my family within 24, 48 hours. Like, I'm like, I want to be home with my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, I miss my fucking dog. <laughs> Whatever. You know? Right. Yeah. I, I want to be. I want to fucking play, play Legos with my kids, dude. I mean, so I like to. I love to make music. I love to play music and I'll never stop. But like now as a family man, I all that's a slice of me now, dude. And I really like to, I like to be there in that, in that, you know, so as much as I can get it and touring is not a way to fucking get that. So I'm, I'm that's that's my point is like the hitting those three shows. It's like, you don't have to play fucking uh, Omaha with fucking 72 people, 100 or 45 people. You don't have to play. I'm no, no offense to Omaha. But you don't have to play like those places that the shows suck in like and then you hit the cool shows like in between all these shitty shows like you just hit the you go banger 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 home you know yeah yeah like 2022 odious mortem festival spots are open just fucking make sure we're paid and i get to come back to my family dude (laughs) i'm with you on that bro i'm with you so since and so since we came back in in 2012 um we've definitely stayed busy you know we we've done a bunch of tours um of course i'm slowing down on that um but we've done two studio albums one live album bunch of uh videos and shit and we're 
we're booked to do a couple of things in 2022. Um, again, festival appearances. And um, I'm about halfway done writing a new Broken Hope album. So I definitely want to get a new Broken Hope album written and released in, in 2022. And then after that, um, uh, you know, I don't ever see myself not writing death metal. You know, I'd like to keep putting out, no matter what, I'd like to keep putting out really quality albums and uh, picking and choosing my battles when it comes to playing live, but I'd like to consistently, no matter what, write and release new Broken Hope music from here. I think once you get to the point where you've been doing something for longer than you haven't, meaning like, you know, you started at 15 and you get to 32, you've done it for longer than you haven't, you know? Once you get to that point, it's like, I think it just keeps rolling downhill, dude, and we're never going to stop. We may fucking, you know... take a break away from it but it's never not going to be on our shoulders fucking looking at us like yo dude when are we going to do this again well you've had a pretty solid lineup for the past few years too jeremy you have you uh we have are the the other guys helping you write the album too like my tokayo diego storia and uh yeah dude let's do a little like crossover nobody really i don't know if anybody knows that crossover right there so since um when Broken Hope came back and we did the obituary tour and, and got our record deal, um, we had we had a lineup that was really short-lived with our bass player, Sean, and this other guitar player that Sean had brought along in the band to be the lead guy. And probably within... See, well, we did our 2013, our, our, our next album had come out. The first one since Grotesque Blessings, Omen of Disease, came out in 2013. And we toured on that album. And uh, before the end of that cycle, Sean and this other guy were gone. So from that point on, from since 2013, um, Diego Soria from Discord. He he's I didn't even know him that well. I knew uh you Diego Sanchez. I knew Diego Soria from sure we did with Diaside, but I all I knew is he was a sick bass player and Damian Lesky um loves you guys. Yeah. One he's probably got more Discord t-shirts than anyone on the <laughs> And it, he wore he wore Discord shirts nonstop, <laughs> changing them. His own shirt, yeah. Fucking love you guys. So he was always like, Diego would love to jam with us. Diego would love to jam with us. Totally. And so we we gave him a shot, and he, he turned out to be fucking. Yeah. He's a solid. He's a solid dude, and he's he picks he's, shit up good, and you yeah, know. he's a he's a really good person. Yeah, really just quality human being, and yeah. he he's a bass player's bass player. Yeah, he for really, sure. he's a phenomenal musician. So we we got him, and then we got Matt Schlatka, who's our yeah. lead guitar player. Um, just absolutely sick. You know, he yeah, that he's got flavor, man. Chimera before Broken Hope, and um, he wow. was also 
Chicago area and I had known him for years. So um, when the, our bass player and that other guitar player were gone, it was like the same day we got hold of Diego and Matt. Uh, we got Diego flew out, Matt came up, we all jammed together and we, we've been together ever since. So, um, that's awesome. See, so that's like, I don't know. We've been together with those guys already seven, seven or eight years. So, um, it's amazing. Time has flown, but yes, we've had, it's really wonderful to have, a solid lineup that's consistent and also to have a band that everyone are not sound corny, but are really brothers who I was just about to say a brotherhood each yeah. other and get along so well. We have a lot of nonstop laughs. We care about each other and everyone also cares about making quality death metal and always being at the top of our game, everyone in the band's got that attitude. But um, and I think you can reach it a lot. You can reach that a lot quicker when people are positive and they're good people, and you actually have that like deeper connection as friends aside yeah. from the band, like this brotherhood, this fellowship, whatever you want to call it. It's like it's just fucking like it, you can reach those higher levels because everybody's kind of like you know supernaturally lifting each other up it's also too like everyone's like realistic about everything everyone's toured everyone's fucking done something they understand what the scene's about they understand what they're getting themselves into it's not like no one has any grandiose visions of being you know opening for metallica as as kids anymore like now they've they've toured and they've hit the scene and they've done everything and it's like and they understand that and then they put that you know they basically put that all in together in the energy of the whole group and now everyone's part of the brotherhood that understands it all it's not like no one is like thinking something different. Everyone's kind of together in the same consciousness, you know? Yep. Yep. You can't put a price on that. I, 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 I wouldn't change the past for the things I've learned and gone through. Totally. But part of me wish, wishes that I had this lineup when I started broken hope, man. Mm-hmm. That's you know, but, that's cool. You know, there's, growing pains it makes me appreciate this lineup and these guys even even more you know what i'm saying so totally dude i mean to bring your project back and then you know you're be lucky enough to come across enough dudes that become that with you it's like of course broken hope should still fucking keep going right now dude you caught another fucking wave dude exactly man and that's the chemistry with these guys really makes uh, being in the band fucking fun. And, 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 and they, their personalities shine through too, but there's still that underlining broken hope essence, you know, like listening to the newer stuff. I really still catch that older vibe in there. The, you know, even though it's like a newer mix and, and different people like the riffs, there's still yeah. the grooves, those broken hope grooves are still like right there, you know? Yeah, we all, everybody, everybody in the band knows what, what, what broken hope is about and everyone embraces that. And to answer Diego's earlier question, uh, yeah, Damien and, and Matt, um, 
that contribute to some of the riff writing. Uh, Matt, Matt's really a genius when it comes to not only his leads, but coming up with harmonies and actually sometimes rearranging songs. He did that with a number of tunes on our last album, Mutilated and Assimilated. I had written songs with, with Mike, demoed them, and then Matt had great suggestions. He's like, well, what if we rearrange this and put this here and made the songs even better? Yeah, and, and you know, I didn't even think about that. And I knew about Gorgasm for a long time and how uh, Damien played guitar while doing vocals. And I was just like, I didn't, I didn't even put two and two together that he could totally influence the writing yeah. of the album as well, even though he's yeah. just doing vocals. Yeah, I was listening to it on like today, like on my way home from work and stuff. And I was like, I felt like a, a slight Damien kind of vibe as far as like the Gorgasmy kind of like I felt a little Gorgasmy. Yeah, yeah. You're talking like a little about. bit, a little yeah. touch. Uh, I mutilated and assimilated. That was the first album that um, Damien contributed riffs to. It was the first album where him and I um, uh, collaborated together too on riffs. So, like the song Carrion Eaters, Damien wrote most of that song, but I, I came in with like, I think I wrote the chorus riff and, and part of the bridge. And then Damien wrote um, all the music for a song called the bunker on that album. That was all him. Um, so he, he's, he's a, he's a sick riffer, sick guitar player, sick vocalist. That goes without saying, but I like his attitude too, when it comes to broken hope, because he's, um, he, he's like a, Diego Sanchez is a riff wizard and Damian Lesky is a fucking death metal wizard. Like he knows <laughs> this is what I bring. I bring something special to the table for broken hope. That oh, yeah. like Andy's, a, Andy's a fellow uh, flip-flop yeah. wearer, so I'll always give him two fucking small horns. Two flip-flops up. Two hand small horns like Joel Horner would do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so yeah, everyone everyone contributes and it's it's a great thing. So That's awesome, uh, man. Awesome. So guys, listen, uh I gotta wrap up soon. It's almost midnight here. Okay, so oh, before yeah, before you wrap up I'm not gonna turn into a pumpkin, but no, I know. No, no, I know. it's all good. So before I you wrap up about the time change again. I want to talk about the Jeff Hanneman guitars because that I've um, that's one thing yeah, that's just yeah, been yeah. That was the hovering pen. over me is the Jeff Hanneman guitars. Well, um if you well, I'll give you some of the backstory, but you can also Google it because uh, Guitar World back back when I acquired some of these instruments uh, did a did a piece about it, huh. and um, I think Metal Hammer did too. They interviewed me about it, but basically, um, uh, Jeff Hanneman's widow, Catherine Hanneman, was going to auction these guitars off at one time, and um, she was having ESP guitars was going to facilitate the auction. So when all that was happening, um, I've been playing ESP exclusively since 1988, since I was 18. And the president of ESP, Matt Massiadaro, really good friend of mine. Um, he's like a big brother to me. He's just fucking family to me. I love that guy. He, uh, he knew Jeff was a huge influence on me and, um, you know, he knew I was 
Matt also knew as a guitar collector and all this stuff. So he had tipped me off about this up. You know, Catherine Hanneman wanted to auction these guitars off, have ESP helper and do all this stuff. So um, he wanted to let me know about it. So in turn, I said, well, rather than auction them off, which he just be willing to sell guitars, you know, depending on the price, blah, 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 um, and work out something with me. I won't waste her time. And uh, so basically Matt went back to her and connected me with her. And I was able to acquire uh, several guitars and I got some of his amps and a bunch of personal. So you actually got those before the auction actually went? Yeah, the auction never happened. Oh, okay. Was that so now I've got like a got like a Jeff Hanneman um tribute room, I guess you'd say. Nice That's, dude. Yeah. Got a bunch of his his uh um I don't know, I got like his shirts and jackets and stuff on mannequins. It's like a legit Hanneman Slater museum, and then there's the guitars and all all this stuff. But he That's uh killer dude. Um uh, Catherine Hanneman, when I got these, she was like, um, you know, please play these instruments. That's what Jeff would want. He wouldn't want these guitars being on display. Collecting dust somewhere. Or collecting dust or anything. So um, on to, to her wishes and in memory of Jeff, um, I wrote most of our last album mutilated and assimilated using two of Jeff's guitars. Um, I also recorded with uh, only using Jeff's guitars and we dedicated that album to Jeff Hanneman. So I'm all about um, (laughs) super rad, Jeremy. Keeping Jeff's spirit alive. I had no idea about those tidbits and that that was just a big way at the end right there flag high uh because you know that's that's important you know Fuck and, yeah it is dude um people some people get the impression that uh you know because i acquired these guitars oh he i get people trying to offer me guitars from other whatever well-known people or or in general and it's like no you don't get it i this has a real emotional meaningful connection to me i'm not just mm-hmm. a guitar mm-hmm. collector that wants to you know buy a frame of a guitar yeah and fucking played it yeah so, you're not trying to make it a fucking uh what is centerpiece it? planet hollywood right. fucking right. yeah yeah so this this stuff uh to what you're asking joel that is extremely meaningful um there's a reason i'm i'm here as broken hope guitar player uh, and part of my, me being here had to do with Jeff Hanneman, you know, his influence on me, uh, riff wise and, and lyrically, lyrically and, yeah. uh, you know, same could be said about, um, uh, you know, Jesse Pintado of Terrorizer and Napalm Death and Chuck Schaldiner and, and James Hetfield, you know, riffers, guitarists who uh, changed my life and really motivated me to continue playing guitar. So to that end, uh, again, these guitars have a very deep 
meaning, emotional meaning. And, and uh, if anyone on this planet is respecting and upholding Jeff Hammond's legacy, it's definitely me, you know. And, and like that last Broken Hope album, you know, I pulled out all the stops, wrote yeah. with those cars, recorded with them, dedicated the album to him. So, um, but the, anyway, that's the Reader's yeah. Digest version of kind of how all this stuff happened. That's you transfer awesome, those frequencies from Jeff through you in the studio and your writing, brother. I, I do, man. You know, I'm all about preservation, too. Um, yeah. The only thing I've done is change the strings on the two guitars that I wrote and recorded with. Other than that, um, everything's intact. Every scratch, every sticker. Um, so even, I just uh, my uh, question with what you just sweat stains around these guitars. You know? <laughs> Sorry, dude, I didn't mean to step over the last part. I just wanted oh, to know because you said you only restringed it, so you obviously looked. You knew what strings Jeff used, what gauge, everything. Is that what you went with too? Like uh, brand and the game. Tuning, tuning, well, tuning will have a lot to do with it. You can't, if you're tuning differently, you can't use the same. Yeah, the tuning, the tuning uh, he, on most of the guitars, there's a little square of yellow duct tape that has the tuning for the guitar. Mm. Um, so like the guitar that, the two guitars I, I wrote with and recorded with were, he had them tuned to C sharp. We tuned to D standard. So it wasn't, much of a stretch too off okay yeah. okay um but that's about it other than that i, I try to keep everything intact keep that hanneman DNA, in as much uh, as yeah around on those instruments that's and just a quick cool, a quick dude. side note on the i mean obviously jeff hanneman but um one of my guitars that i've always just wanted just to have it's like the number one guitar is uh kerry king's that flying v that got it's the reverse Base uh golf headstock ESP. Yes, uh, it's, it's, they got they got they got sued for that because Gibson sued him for that. I guess supposedly because mm -hmm. it looked the headstock was so similar. But I've found a couple of them just for resale because that came out during the Seasons in the Abyss. Um, Seasons in the Abyss. That's right. Yep. And that was uh and I think they're going for. I mean, if you find them, they're probably fifteen grand. I like, got damn. one. It's got a crackle type of finish. Yeah, on. the red crackle. Yeah, and I got a real deal on that. And I had never seen one in all my years, anyone ever selling Fuck. one. That's the one I want. <laughs> the right time. Yeah, I know. It was like a unicorn, you know. Yeah. But to me, that's my guitar that I want. That's Yeah, that's that's the exact one, Joel. Seasons like this, that crazy hockey-like headstock. Yeah. Yep. You have that? <laughs> I have Yeah. Oh my God! We'll offer you eight grand right now. <laughs> if I ever decide to part with that one, I promise you, I will hit you. Boom. Up. I will Boom. fucking first one in line. That's like, dude. I've always wanted that. That's like as a childhood uh, live intrusion Slayer. I mean, obviously, that's, a, that's yeah. like a, what got me into Slayer. That was like because I was in high school, yeah. and uh, he's playing that one. I'm like, that's the sickest fucking guitar I've ever seen. And and to this day, like, I mean, there's other brands that will do like copies of it, but that that actual one is like the unicorn for me. That's like my unicorn. And it was so short lived, too, with ESP. I mean, that was it. Kerry came in, uh, had a deal with ESP, didn't care for me, went back to BC Rich. BC Rich, yeah. That's what makes it even more special because that window was so small. 
it's from that one time, like 94 or whatever, you know. So. Exactly. Exactly. That's my that's my unicorn, man. I'm sorry, 90, yeah. 90 to 94, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jeremy, I know it's fucking it's yeah, actually dude. midnight there now. So I love Happy that little Christmas, or, I mean, not Christmas, uh, New Year's tidbits, Eve. Though, dude. I love the yeah. little Honestly, tidbits. Appreciate you having me on. Um, Fuck yeah. If I, if I ever get invited back, we'll. I'm inviting you back right oh, now, well, right this second. I'm yeah, you're invited back. You, you're all 100%. Trace ourselves back to after bowels. I'll give you a little more history. Cool, dude. Yeah, I want, that's actually because I could talk to you guys for fucking 20 oh, hours. dude, and I'd love it because my part two would be like, let's dig into repulsive conception because repulsive repulsive conception was actually the first tape that I ever bought on shout out Dusty Boisjoli's uh, recommendation when we used to go down to Santa Cruz. So it's like this whole fucking thing that like our listeners kind of know about that I don't obviously you don't know about, but it's still like one of those like key moments for me was repulsive conception. So yeah, part and two, we'll go deep into that, dude. I, I would love to because yeah, I didn't even touch upon repulsive or loathing or anything much so uh yeah i think my the only me, shout out we got uh, was pimple grin i threw one of those little like yes. yeah. <laughs> so um i got a whole story on pitbull grin itself that i'd love to share so uh yeah let's we'll do a, the mailman do it, dude. yeah as, you know, as soon as you're um, ready we'll fucking be ready dude set it up and um I'll, I'll come back. Let's do it. So. Boom. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah, Jeremy. Thanks All for going. Right, I appreciate Jeremy. it. So we'll, we'll say one more goodbye with you, Jeremy, after I say this right here. Love all you guys. Thanks for hanging out with us this week. Um, happy New Year. Um, if you're watching this at the time, that, that'd be cool if like somebody's watching this while the ball drops right now, dude. That'd be <laughs> go kiss your screens, kiss all these beautiful men right here. Kiss your screens. That's your, your New Year's kiss. All the, the resident homies. And it'll drop. <laughs> <laughs> Rock on, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next week. Fuck yeah. yeah.